G'day, mate. 40 here. So on Friday, we got the announcement of a special prosecutor for the Hunter Biden matter. Can't imagine that this is good news for the Democrats or for President Joe Biden. So what? Two two months ago, it looked like there was going to be some uh, plea deal where Hunter Biden would just cop to a couple of misdemeanors and the whole thing would go away. All right. Doesn't look like that anymore. Let's get some commentary here from Robert Wright and Mickey Kaus. But if they can really show something like what you're saying, then even if they can't show the money going to Biden himself, that should be kind of a little bit of a scandal, right? I mean, that's pretty shady. I think so. I, you know, I think it, it, my line is it's it's uh, impeachable, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't vote for him under certain circumstances. But, I'm not um, sure it's I would almost say the opposite. It's imp- it's, it's, I'm not sure it's... Imp- okay, let's uh, start off, say good uh, good morning to Duvid. Duvid, how are you this morning? Thank God. Okay, great. Um, so while I just figure, fiddle around with a couple of uh, technical things here on, on my end, uh, talk to me about um, what's what's been going on with you since I spoke to you last. Um, I mean, personally, not that much. I, uh, I was actually recognized by the city of Detroit for uh, 10 years of, uh, chess coaching. So, uh, I guess that, that was nice on Thursday. There was a 20th year anniversary of the Detroit city chess club of which I've been a chess coach now for 10 years. And, uh, besides that, uh, you know, still doing my research, selling books, uh, but uh, not much advancement in my own personal streaming or life. Okay. And, uh, you there, Luke? Met me having microphone yeah. issues. I asked, have you gone back to Shul? No, I, di- I didn't go back. In fact, I went, uh, I told you I went for those two medical events. There's another medical event. Um, do you in like a to week the- for now and you know, M- Michael came to my house Friday night and we did the Friday prayers and he like uh he was feeling really inspired he was like wanting to move to Israel and make Aliyah and uh I was thinking like okay like maybe I could bring him to the local young Israel but honestly like I didn't even know I mean like I probably have to contact somebody or if I could just show up uh, Saturday morning I know they have security or, uh, and it, it made me feel kind of weird about it because I mean, it's the nature of synagogue where I'm not actually sure I could bring my friend who's like trying to convert. Hmm. Yeah. I understand that we've got uh, much tighter security measures in place. So you're touching on something that, uh, I've often reflected on, uh, when, when people embrace, Orthodox Judaism as adults, either as converts or as ballet tshuva, I've noticed that they are often seeking in Orthodox Judaism uh, things that Orthodox Judaism is not necessarily suited to primarily providing. They're, they're usually seeking, if they're not doing it for pragmatic reasons, they're, they're doing it to try to get a sense of meaning in their life, a sense of God in their life, but really they want to get a life where they like and respect themselves. And usually people who already like and respect themselves don't make 
a dramatic change like uh, joining Orthodox Judaism. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, Mika, I lived in New York for uh, um, a long time. I'm not sure. Have, have you seen the Frieda Weisel uh, YouTube page yet? The Satmir, uh, the Satmir tours of uh, Williamsburg. I'm not sure. I haven't paid attention. I'll link in the chat. I mean, it's not su super interesting, but I say it's extremely different in New York than probably anywhere. Maybe, maybe L.A., but probably not L.A. because um, New York and in Israel, when you become Jewish, you, you're looking at a community that you're going to become a part of, and that community is large and powerful. So, like, you know, here in Metro Detroit, there, there's a few thousand Orthodox Jews, um, but, you know, they live in the poorest part of, uh, you know, at least the you know, Oakland County of where the Jews live. And if you join the Jews, uh, you wouldn't necessarily be looking forward to becoming integrating part of the Orthodox community. So if you talk like someone like Michael, who lives you know, like 45 minutes out into the suburb, doesn't have too much connection with Jews at all in almost zero connection with Orthodox Jews. It's more, you know, him, like you're like, you were talking like a personal identity thing that is connecting to Judaism and then a feel possibly towards Orthodoxy, as opposed to if you were actually in um, New York city where, you know, you saw Hasidim, you saw Orthodox Jews or like Lakewood and, or, or uh, you had some sort of connection to uh, Israel where you were, would have been thinking about it from the beginning of an integration within some sort of uh, culture community. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're touching there on something that I notice also that uh, I notice a lot of people want to be part of Orthodox Judaism, but they're simply not prepared to make the, the, the sacrifices that are necessary to be a normal part of Orthodox Judaism. And so they often try to do it on the cheap by trying to get around the required sacrifices such as you know moving to within walking distance of a synagogue and then they they are concerned that they don't fit in because they're not making the sacrifices necessary to fit in but uh, there is a substantial sacrifice required to pull off a conversion to orthodox judaism not just a conversion in form not just passing through the process but actually making it real in your life after you've passed through the the process uh, any thoughts on the, the relatively large number of people I think who would love to be a part of Orthodox Judaism but simply are not willing or not able to make the sacrifices necessary to be a part of Orthodox Judaism? Yeah, I mean, the vast majority of people don't even realize the sacrifices involved. And even like, you know, Misenk, who successfully did it for many years, picked up, you know, multiple languages, lived a different life uh, you know, for per periods of my life you basically completely cut ties with uh, my family, all my former friends and uh, connections. And, uh, you know, then I still largely failed. And, uh, you know, then if you did successfully find a marriage partner and have children of trying to uh, raise your kids. So, I mean, if you find it interesting, I think this dichotomy of, if you look, maybe me or Michael, where, um, I more just enjoy being an Orthodox Jew and interacting and as a life outlook of how I, how I do things. And the community part is more difficult because uh, I don't necessarily really feel like I fit in with the community or I'm a representative of 
um, a community. However, I like interacting with Gentiles and secular Jews and even fellow Orthodox Jews as an Orthodox Jew, um, but I never really integrated into the community as opposed to uh, integrating in the community. Like I know when I went into Israel, I was in Orsamak and uh, you have the cure of rabbis and versus uh, what they tell you, uh, you know, versus my own perception, you know, where I saw like, I got to fit in with these Orthodox Jews, these Hasidic Jews and like the gatekeeper approach where the Orthodox Jews are like the gatekeeper who are going to say whether you're really Jewish or not. And, uh, you know, Michael, maybe from his background, he's not really concerned with that. Like, he, you know, he knows that almost no one has even heard of these rabbis, uh, has met any of these rabbis, and he just enjoys interacting with his old family, his old friends, uh, new people he meets as a Jew. And like, well, I'm, you know, like kind of like you when you were streaming, I watched you be like, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And like, I would have watched you like, you're not an Orthodox Jew, no way. Um, you know, like if you were an Orthodox Jew, you, you would, uh, you're doing all this wrong. Uh, but, you know, from your perspective, you're like, well, you, you know, go back to the ghetto, you know, saying like, I'm an Orthodox Jew and I'm going to keep on doing this um, versus trying to actually fit into the ghetto. And, you know, so to say, I've tried to fit in the ghetto and I saw it's like, OK, I mean, you got these rebbies, you got these rabbis and you got to do whatever they tell you. You got to do all this stuff. You got to uh, um, in. I wouldn't say it's impossible because there are many people who succeed, but it's borderline impossible to so to say to convert and fit into um orthodox judaism and, but uh you know, even here in oak park michigan there's converts that uh i put it that you know, may be a better way to express it we those who shun the outside world so they shed their former identity and then take on a new identity within the confines of the orthodox world or there's those who convert and then use that as a new way to approach the outside world. And, and maybe you're uh, the latter where you, you didn't shed your old identity to hide within the confines of Orthodox Judaism. You put on like a new suit and now you're approaching the outside world with that new suit, that new identity on. Mm, so many topics you, you bring up there. Uh, so the, the most stable transition to Orthodox Judaism of which I've seen is the transition to Orthodox Judaism that seems to be primarily motivated by marriage, uh, by you've already established a relationship with someone who's an Orthodox Jew, and so to get married and to build a family together, you convert to Orthodox Judaism. In your experience, is this the most stable form of, most stable basis for entry into Orthodox Judaism? I mean, you must be talking L.A. because, like, I think that's extremely rare. I mean, even here in, like, Metro Detroit, there might only be a handful of examples because they're going to frown on that. So, like, if you're outside Orthodox Judaism, like, you know, you reform or conservative, you're not going to bother converting Orthodox for marriage. And if you're Orthodox, the chance that you actually... Uh, that's my phone ringing. Okay, go ahead. Uh, take I, I, it's not important. So it won't ring um, the chance that you're actually going to be in a situation like that where you're um, you're going to be engaged to marry an Orthodox person. And, and the last hurdle is converting um, is almost non-existent. So, I mean, maybe in L.A. it's a, it's a different ballpark where you have all sorts of uh, your orthodoxy is on a much lower level where you have uh, your Orthodox Jews in relations with non-Jews. And then they would, uh, you know, convert to uh make the family happy 
but the, yeah, I would say like, you know, you got a really weak Orthodox community in LA if that's the case. There's something to what you say in that uh, the level of commitment to Judaism, like the level of commitment to Christianity is considerably attenuated on the West Coast compared to the East Coast. So I notice on the East Coast, uh, people have much stronger, meaning the Northeast, not, not so much Florida. But I notice in, in the Northeast, people have much stronger ethnic ties. They have much stronger ties in general to their families. They have much stronger ties in general to their religion, to, to their schools, to traditional forms of identity it seem to be much, much stronger. And so Judaism is, is much more rigorous, much more demanding from my experience on the Northeast of the United States compared to the West Coast. What are the major patterns or genres that you've seen among people who convert to Orthodox Judaism and pass through the process and seemingly pull it off? Um, well, just to go back before we, if, if you wanted to dwell on this, like, how, like, cause to me, it's unfathomable what you're saying. Like, how is it possible that people convert to Orthodox Judaism for marriage? Like, I can't even like fathom the pathway of like, what, like, what does that look like? How is it possible? You're saying like there was an Orthodox Jew who was like dating a, dating a Shiksa. And then like the only thing he needed was her to convert. So they converted her. Yeah, like, I it, mean, it's almost unfathomable. Like, like, how does that even happen? How could well, how it could happens you... hundreds of times a year in the United States. It's the the prime mover behind conversion to Orthodox Judaism, because people primarily meet each other at, at work or if they're in a similar profession. And so, particularly modern Orthodox Jews are almost always in the professions, such as lawyer, doctor, dentist, accountant. And so, if you haven't, you know, married by the time you're 22, 24, which is kind of normal in Orthodox Judaism, but get into your late 20s and you meet someone at work, all right, uh, the odds are, are pretty high that that person won't be Jewish. And so people fall in love and uh, Orthodox Jews are affected by the culture around them. And so falling in love is largely seen in the culture that surrounds us as the basis for, for getting married and forming a family. So yeah, I see this happening a lot with Orthodox Jews. I'm surprised that you consider it you know, virtually impossible. Yeah. I mean, certainly in New York city, like, I don't think that's ever happened like that because, uh, I mean, the community is so large and there would be so many eyes upon a person that, uh, I'm saying like there's hundreds of thousands of, uh, Jewish girls that you could, uh, you know, always be set up with that, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the delineation of orthodoxy usually, you know, is not modern orthodox where, you know, people would be, you having beards or Hasidish or, or clearly dressed as Jewish where it wouldn't, uh, you couldn't have like a relationship with the, you know, maybe if you're like in a modern Orthodox area or LA where very few people, uh, where there's a, a larger constituency of modern Orthodox than Orthodox where the person's in the work world and, uh, you, you know, their romantic partner doesn't know that they're Jewish or how seriously they take their Jewishness. And, uh, the relationship carries on for a while uh, to the point where they, you know, they, they'd consider getting married and they would need to convert. So like in, in Brooklyn or New York, uh, the differentiation would just be too strong. You know, so if you're, you're Orthodox, it would be obvious you're Orthodox. It would be obvious from the beginning that uh, it's not going to work, that you'd have to, you know, convert. And so, the, you know, the likelihood that you'd fall in love and then, and then find out that like, Oh, you have to convert 
in that you wouldn't know that up front or that other people wouldn't know about it uh, you know, right away that, uh, you know, so if you're even in Metro Detroit, but, uh, you know, so if you're in a romantic relationship with like a coworker, uh, your fellow Orthodox Jews would almost definitely know about that at the beginning and put a stop to it, uh, you know, to uh, not allow it to reach that level. So I'm guessing it's more something like in L.A. that uh, just culturally would not be practical in New York. And that's why I say, like, I can I can think of almost no cases like that uh, in my experience uh, in New York. And, and then I mean, if you wanted to respond or you want to say the pathways I saw. OK, to, I'll uh, just uh, I'll just respond. So also what you often get is that someone falls in love with someone who he or she believes is Jewish and then finds out that they're not Jewish according to. Orthodox law, even though the persons believe they're Jewish all their life because they grew up reform or conservative. So that happens. Also, many Bale Tshuva, all right, people who are not Orthodox uh, fall in love with someone who's not Jewish. And then along the way, they, the, the Jewish partner decides to become Orthodox and the, their non-Jewish partner decides to come along for the, for the ride. So feel free to respond to that. Otherwise, Talk to me about the different yeah, so that, uh, that just, genres. The communities are too strong in Brooklyn for that to happen, because like the differentiation between Jewish and Balchuva, or you know, you think you might be Jewish. Like in Brooklyn, like you got the rabbis, like everybody's cousins, or went to school, so it's like you're Orthodox. You went to an Orthodox school, and uh, you know it's obvious. Like you know, like I mean, unless like there's a rare case of somehow like a person from one of these questionable backgrounds somehow got into and went to one of these orthodox schools so like your marriage pool would be from fellow people who went to these schools and uh if you're like a balchuva or someone who thinks you might be jewish there's so many rabbis all over the place that would have put you through the ringer i mean i'm and because i know that's what they went through with me like uh you know they wanted to know my family records they wanted to know my family ancestry and uh, i was put into a questionable category and one of the reasons I was never applicable for marriage, because I was never able to conclusively um, demonstrate my my uh, Jewishness for marriage standards within the Orthodox. So, you know, so I, I see in L.A. where it's completely different than Brooklyn, where you have, you know, just like a, a subculture of Orthodox Jews that run their own thing. And, you know, in L.A., I could imagine that it's that much different. I'm not sure if you could imagine Brooklyn being that much different where there is no path to what you're talking about. There is no path to a romantic relationship between a Jew and a non-Jew that could end in conversion, except for a person who went off the derrick. So if like a person went off the derrick, left the community, was living in a non-Jewish area and then fell in love, maybe like in terms of like trying to make their family happy to convert or, uh, uh, but almost in none of those cases would the person return to you know, the mainstream Brooklyn Orthodox community. So, you know, like there, there are plenty of cases like that where people have a cousin or a brother who left the community and married, and maybe they went through now they're modern Orthodox and went through a conversion. But like, if they came back into Brooklyn, um, they would be questioned um, on their Judaism permanently. And I remember like in, in Bubov in various Hasidic yeshivas, um even bali chuva generally have to marry the children of bali chuva generally marry the children of other bali chuva because uh lineage is that important to people 
that uh, that even like two or three generations later, you're like, oh, my granddad was a Balchuva, and uh, you, know, you know, like his yichus, his lineage was questionable. That uh, that the the general community still does not want to intermarry or date with their children. So, like in LA, I could picture that it's that different. I'm not sure if you could picture in Brooklyn it being that different to the other extent. Yeah, I think we're we're probably both speaking out of our own experiences. So I doubt that. 50% of Orthodox Jews on the East Coast live lives that are as closely regulated and scrutinized by the rabbis as you describe. I think you're talking about more traditional, verging on Haredi communities, of which you're more aware. I am mostly aware of West Coast forms of Orthodox Judaism, which are considered considerably watered down compared to uh, what you describe on the East Coast. Most uh, well, not most, but a large number of Orthodox Jews on the East Coast do not lead lives as regulated and scrutinized and as under the thumb of the rabbis as you describe. Most, or not not most, many Orthodox Jews on the East Coast, a considerable number, approximating 50%, you know, do not lead lives like this. Do you think I'm wrong? No, I think you're right. So I thought it was interesting just to highlight that and, like you know, said that, uh, you know, when I was in Hasidic Brooklyn, where, you know, you actually have a Jewish neighborhood where basically, I mean, we also talked about this in relation to uh, the difference in New York and multiculturalism, because, you know, the, it's not Jews among whites. There's almost no whites there. And, you know, the Jews are largely representative of the whites. Uh, but, you know, there, there's Hebrew letters on the signs and uh, maybe half the people speak Yiddish as the first language. And a lot of these schools are Yiddish schools and uh, maybe on the Upper West Side, you could be right. Like even on the Upper West Side where you have hundreds of thousands of Jews, um, still it's very common for them to take their yarmulke off, to use Anglo-sized names. And it could be even on the Upper West Side of Manhattan that it's closer to what Luke is saying than what I'm saying. But like I live in Hasidic Brooklyn and uh, you may, maybe it gets back to your, your next question about uh, what are the pathways to conversion. Wait, hang on, before we go there. So to fill and date, I, I think that's probably largely a modern Orthodox thing. So to fill and date is when you're going out with someone and you take your tefillin along because you expect to spend the night with the, with the woman. And so when you get up in the morning, you're going to want to put on your, your tefillin. So obviously there weren't a lot of tefillin dates in the Orthodox communities that you knew in New York. Yeah, when I mean, we talked about this many times, and I think the, the difference from like Orthodox, modern Orthodox to Haredi is when you reach the Haredi level, you have no personal autonomy. Um, you, you know, like if you miss Marev, like someone's going to be like, where was he? And, uh, and almost everybody you know, everybody you associate, you're going to already have to be off the derrick to have a level of personal autonomy. I don't know if that makes sense to you, like in sense like, oh, like, uh, you know, like if you were in the Haredi community, everybody would know all of your friends. You would not be able to conceal a single like friend that the community doesn't know about. And if you disappeared for a day or two, um, everybody would know it. It was like, oh, Luke wasn't in shul, you know, for the, the three times a day he's expected to be in shul. And it would be like, you know, topic every single person that, uh, you know, followed you or cared about you. Or, or your haters would like, you know, where, where, where was he? And uh, it's meant to protect about, uh, protect from the things that you're mentioning. And uh, I mean, we've discussed that level of personal autonomy and the level of completely giving up any personal autonomy. Yeah. And the, the other rejoinder I'd have 
anyone who's spending time around non-Jews is going to be far more susceptible to falling in love with one, just like any woman who works is going to be much more vulnerable to having an affair than women who just stay home with, with the kids. So there are Haredi Jews who spend a great deal of their professional life around non-Jews, and so they're, they're much more vulnerable to falling in love with a non-Jewish woman than those who don't uh, spend a great deal of time around non-Jews. Is that fair? Well, no, no. I mean, because like in the Hasidic community, only adult male businessmen spend time around non-Jews, and generally that, that would only be the case after they're married with children. So uh, there would be basically no possibility for fraternization except for adult married men that already have children. And like generally in the Hasidic community, you don't enter the business world until you're married with children. Okay, so what are the different types of conversions to Orthodox Judaism that you have seen that appear to be somewhat successful? Um, so I'll give three general paths. One is the incremental path, maybe like yours, where it moves from reform to conservative to orthodox to even like Hasidic. And that could happen very rapidly or over a long period of time. You know, I mean, a person within a few months of uh, going to a reform temple could uh, come on to uh, ultra-orthodoxy or could take uh, you know, many years or decades for for that incremental process. Uh, the other is possibly people, maybe Michael is a case of that, like independent spiritual seekers for whatever reason, and maybe you're also somewhat a case like that before your incrementalism through like Dennis Prager or something, but just people from whatever personal development, largely outside of any connection to Jews or the Jewish community start to affiliate as a Jew, start to study Judaism, and then it could move on to the incremental process, uh, you know, uh, like, but, but saying that it's a personal discovery process as opposed to a communal, um, like, uh, you know, you're in university and you start going to the Hillel House and then you start going to the Reform Friday night prayers or, or things like that and get more into it uh, versus a person who makes their own personal discovery and think I'm a Jew even before they meet Jews. And then the third case would be more like you're saying, and there'd be a whole bunch of various pathways where it'd be direct connection with the Orthodox community, where the however it came to be that a Gentile has reached into the social circles of basically all Orthodox Jewish circles. So, you know, whatever reason, you know, it could be party circuits, it could be business, um, but uh, where you have or it could be a Gentile who just happens to live in an Orthodox area, um, but where the Gentile is a minority among a, mi a majority of Orthodox Jews and decides to culturally make the switch to uh, the other side. So I, I would say those are the three major uh, pathways, and, and uh, I think you have a reasonable amount of all three of those. And I would just add that those people who have led stable lies prior to conversion, the most likely to continue on with Orthodox Judaism after their conversion. Those people who have led chaotic lives prior to conversion are the most you know, likely to not be after sustain a conversion to Orthodox Judaism. People who have 
experienced life within community and are pleased to live within the confines of, of any community are going to be much better suited to converting to Orthodox Judaism than those who don't. Those with a generally pro-social orientation are going to be much more suited to conversion to Orthodox Judaism. Also, you need to earn an above-average amount of money. And so those people who were leading a professional life where they were earning above-average money uh, prior to conversion, they're much more likely to be successful in a conversion to Orthodox Judaism than those who struggle to even earn an average amount of money. So people with better life skills, people who are more competent, uh, people who are more at ease with themselves and other people, people who earn money, who handle money responsibly, who handle alcohol responsibly, who handle the natural passions of life responsibly prior to conversion, much more likely to be able to continue on with a conversion to Orthodox Judaism after they've passed through the formal stages. So what happens when you convert to Orthodox Judaism is that uh, whatever's going on with you internally prior to the conversion or whatever your habits were with money, with the natural passions, with other people, with yourself prior to conversion, those habits are just going to continue. They just may express themselves in different language and in different circumstances. But if you had a problem with the opposite sex prior to conversion, if you had a problem with anger or depression prior to conversion, those, those problems are going to continue after your conversion. Any thoughts? Yeah, we I mean, definitely. Um, although, you know, a Hasidic friend used to say, like, normal in America is being able to hide your problems. And uh, it depends how normal you are. So, like, they like said, like, if you're here in Metro Detroit um, and you come from the more higher social economic places, uh, or converting to Orthodox Judaism, joining their community might be a downgrade. And I, I would probably guess it's like that in LA. So I'm guessing like where you are in LA, it, you know, it might be modern Orthodox. It might be relatively quite wealthy. And most of the people, you know, have college educations and secular careers that include respect from non-Jews. However, certainly today, I would almost guarantee that the actual rabbis who oversee Orthodox conversion, none of those people have a college degree and they're probably in the more ghettoized part of Los Angeles that you might be able to convert in your area, be an Orthodox Jew, but you have to go to the ghettoized part of Orthodox Judaism, pass a bunch of rabbis that have no university uh, education and is in a lower social economic place than where you currently are residing and integrating with the with you the your your Jewish community. Yeah, that, you know, I, I, yeah, I've never seen anyone convert to Orthodox Judaism and have a lifestyle downgrade. Uh, so what you've seen, I have not seen. Now in in Los Angeles, if you're converting to Hollywood, can you convert in Hollywood, or you have to go? I don't know where the Orthodox community is, but I would assume that the rabbinic court that converts you is not in Hollywood. It's in, uh, you know, the mainstream black hat area of town. And, uh, you know, so if you're from Hollywood and you convert and uh, you decide to move to the black hat area of town, that's a downgrade. Well, the areas of town where the Jews live are not downgrades. There's Hancock Park and there's uh, Beverly Hills, basically, and those areas surrounding that. And then 
than the, the valley, valley village in the San Fernando Valley. So these are all uh, relatively the upscale. Now, Where's the, the rabbinic court headquartered? There, there's not one rabbinic court. It's not like Detroit. We've got at least uh, 12 conversion to Orthodox Judaism, Bate Din, Jewish law courts in Los Angeles. Okay, so it may be different there, but uh, um, and, and also the, the your social economic. So I mean, relatively, like okay, in Metro Detroit, Oak Park is upper middle class neighborhood, um, but it borders Detroit. And relative to the Jewish community, um, Oak Park is the poorest Jewish neighborhood. Um, you know, if you looked at home values, maybe home values in Oak Park are like one hundred fifty thousand on average. In my neighborhood, uh, you know, now with inflation, let's say, you know, 200, 250,000 on average. And further out in the suburbs, uh, you may be like half a million on average. And the Orthodox community is confined to the areas, you know, up to about $200,000 in home value. So if you're coming from Detroit, where the average home value might be $30,000 um, or outside of the suburbs, uh, but if you're coming from the better parts, social economic parts of the suburbs, a conversion to, and I've seen it a handful of times, that if you're from a nicer area of Metro Detroit and convert, um, in order to live with the Orthodox Jewish community, you're gonna have to make a social economic downgrade and then say in the black hat part of town, um, college education is not necessarily respected. So like, you know, your part of town, maybe all the Jews are college educated. However, in uh, you know Oak Park, uh, maybe less than 10% of the Jews are uh, college educated. And then certainly in Brooklyn, it'll be a huge differential. Uh, you know, like I lived in the five towns and like, yeah, so the, in New York, like the Long Island, the five towns where the average home value may be uh, even a million dollars, they have an Orthodox section, they have their own uh, conversion court. Um, but like, you know, if you're from the five towns and uh, you, you know, grew up going to elite high schools, and you know, had your own car at sixteen, and were expected to go to good universities. Uh, the cultural transition to the Orthodox uh, part of town would be huge, because uh, you know, almost none of those people would go to university. Most of those people would be relatively poor. Uh, you, you know, like uh, you know, maybe even a third of them would be on government aid and uh, welfare programs. Uh, you, you know, they're like we've talked about this uh, many times. Where you said in your your part of town you don't have beggars coming to shul, but like in the I Orthodox never, state, never, I never, ever, ever in a million years said we don't have beggars coming to shul. Of course, we have beggars coming to shul. But I mean, they don't come directly up and hit you up. Uh, yes, they come know. directly up and hit you up while you're davening. Okay, and that's even in. Uh, that's even in uh, Beverly Hills. Yeah. So, but by saying like the comparison to like the yeshiva part of town is probably tenfold. I like don't the, know about that want, because the beggars are smart. They go where the money is. Um, well, it could be, but, but I mean, they try to make it less welcoming. So I mean, even at the, even at the, the young Israel near my house, um, you know, they worked out a system where they're expected to go to the rabbi and the rabbi will give them a donation on behalf of the congregation, as opposed to individually going up to people. And at least here, they've been able to, maintain that system and uh, you know various places like in the five towns or something like that they'll, they'll have some sort of system where that you know call like a god by sadaka and so that uh um and i know my my parents were, were you know the cultural shock 
uh, but but even even at that level, like like the security, like I, I had an old friend from uh, Burl Park call me a few like a month ago, and he was telling me like yeah, like I was telling him about security and like you know all the shuls, like security guards. And he said like in in the Hasidic uh, parts of uh, Brooklyn, uh, the synagogues still have open doors. You know, like you could just uh, you know, walk in open doors to any synagogue, and so that you know it it makes it. Uh, but I mean, we were making the point about a downgrade. And so most converts who convert to Judaism is an upgrade in their social economic status. Uh, if but there well, are cases in, in your where experience, to Judaism would be uh, would be a downgrade in their social economic status. Yeah, in in my experience, uh, most uh, conversions to Orthodox Judaism in Los Angeles are not a downgrade because most people who live in Los Angeles who are middle class are upwardly mobile. Those who are downwardly mobile move move from California because it's so competitive and expensive. But uh, let me move on to a slightly different topic. Uh, one of the least stable bases that I've noticed that these uh, people to convert to Orthodox Judaism is an experience with the light or an experience with God, some kind of transcendental experience such as through meditation or drugs or some other gift where people are given a, an experience of the infinite and this is, I think, a very common basis for conversion to Christianity. It's not usually a stable basis for a conversion to Orthodox Judaism. Uh, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was meaning to mention that before we got uh, um, off on that uh, you know, side tangent uh, of, and maybe Michael would be a case of someone that feels like, I'm Jewish, I don't need these rabbis to convert me. Like, I know I'm a Jew, and that's their own personal identity they've adapted. And I don't know if you felt like that where, you know, at some point you, you know, when you, I mean, people watch, you know, your story with your, uh, your chronic fatigue syndrome and you woke up one day and just like, I'm a Jew. And um, you didn't feel like you needed gatekeepers within the Jewish community to affirm it. Um, or that wasn't your case, but uh, you know, the, the, you do have a strong element of people that uh, they're just like I'm a Jew. I don't need any uh, you know Jews or rabbinic court to affirm it. And those people probably have a harder time succeeding. Although it might be the majority of people who attempt to convert to Orthodox Judaism are these people who feel like that, where where they just whatever reason determine that they're Jewish, and it bothers them the authority structure that they have to go through as a person who you know I want to be a Jew and I'm willing to do whatever these rabbis tell me it takes to become a Jew. Right. So I never thought that uh, becoming Jewish was just something that I could do autonomously. So I've always understood that my identity is something that is, I would like to think I always understood this, is something that's jointly created. It's virtually impossible to sustain a personal identity that everybody around you denies and degrades and, and denigrates. So anyone who tries to pull that off it's it's it verges on the impossible if you're not getting any support for it we can really only sustain identities including jewish if they are supported by a, a community by people we need we need other people uh let me Would you agree with my estimate the majority of converts are probably of the a type that think that they're jewish and don't need to convert and that's why they don't make it or, or you don't think that uh, that's the majority of converts well, or, or, wait, or wait, wait, if we, hang on, hang on, hang on. If we're just talking about converts to Orthodox Judaism, then by definition, if they don't make it, they're not converts in this conversation. 
So yes, those people attempty, attempty converts that the that maybe even half of attempty converts are people that have just decided that they're Jewish and don't really want to uh, respect the conversion process. But that's actually the majority, and that's why the majority failed. I, yeah, I think there there are a lot of people like that, and they don't really matter to the Orthodox Jewish community because they get weeded out uh, fairly ruthlessly. They're not able to sustain their their illusion for very long. Yeah, but from a Chabad perspective, they get weeded out of the Orthodox community, but usually those people stick around, and usually those people will loose, loosely befriend Jews on the exterior of the community and will still possibly the rest of their life or for large periods of time present themselves as Jewish to non-Jews. And I mean, it's an identity. So it could be there'd be a crash in identity where the person's like, I'm Jewish, I woke up, I'm Jewish. And they might go with that for like 10 years and then they just change their mind. Um, or sometimes they'll die like that. But uh, they might get weeded out of the Orthodox community, but you you know, they don't disappear. Yeah, I think that's that's fair. And there's a tremendous amount of fluidity in identity in America today, which even affects both Orthodox Jews and those who wish to be Orthodox Jews. So I've known Orthodox Jews, uh, I think I think she, one in particular I'm thinking of right now, I think she was born Jewish, uh, became Orthodox for marriage. Then when her marriage ended, she went off and uh, married a, a Mormon in, and lived in Utah. Another woman converted uh, to Orthodox Judaism, uh, got married to a Jewish man. They they had Jewish kids, but then they got a divorce when the kids became adults, and then she completely left everything behind. So th there's a yeah tremendous fluidity in identity, particularly those who are more modern and more associated with the general American society compared to those in Haredi forms of Judaism. What? When you said that, it made me think of an interesting point, and I would say that I would guess that very few people want to become Orthodox Jews. They just see Orthodox Judaism as the gatekeeping to legitimate con conversion, and they might go through it for seeking legitimacy of the conversion, and uh, and then see that they they've passed the level they're 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 Jew now according to Orthodox standards, but they don't necessarily and and. I'm not sure in LA, like, uh, I mean, certainly now I, I would guess less likely maybe when you converted modern Orthodox Jews had more power. Uh, but you know, I think in the last few years, they've really hollowed out the uh, modern Orthodox conversion process. And if you did want to convert, you would have to get through the yeshivish Orthodox conversion process, and then you could become modern Orthodox. But the actual rabbis who would convert you uh, would not be modern Orthodox, certainly in Metro Detroit, maybe in LA, they still have a few uh, do they have like a modern Orthodox uh, bed bet in that can do conversions? Yes, but you're, you're right that the Haredi are steadily taking over Jewish life in in America and in Israel. That they are increasingly effective at flexing their power and getting what they want. So I mean, you could still be like you could still, um, you know, so to say, like I think you were more Orthodox, like you did black hat Judaism for a few years. Yeah. But as I've told you many times, I'm not going to get into the, the weeds and the details of much of my Orthodox experience.
But I say that you, yeah. so, so to say you had to pass those gatekeepers in order to get into the modern Orthodox community. So it wasn't you didn't want to be maybe you did at the time, but like you wanted to so to say be a modern Orthodox Jew, but you had to pass the gatekeepers of black hat Orthodox. Right. You you keep wanting to bring it back to me every time we have a discussion. You keep wanting to bring it back well, I, okay, to my pers to, personal life, and I'm I'm not going to go there. So but, I, I put my I own personal made point welfare. That very few people want to be black hat Orthodox Jews. It's just that they're the gatekeepers for uh, conversion. So when the person's goal is to pass the gatekeepers and then be Jewish at their own level, and they just see like what, you know, whatever reason, uh, you know, maybe they distaste it uh, even after their conversion or, or, or not. They just say these guys are the gatekeepers. They have to pass through the gatekeepers, and then they could be Jewish at their own level like most Jews. And, and so you know, I would say very few people who convert actually want to be part of the ultra-Orthodox community. They just want to pass those gatekeepers. There's something to that, but I think there's even more to there's a large number of Orthodox Jews who would love to be modern Orthodox, but they simply can't afford it. And so they, they choose other forms of Orthodox Judaism simply because they cannot afford the expense of modern Orthodox life. It costs about half as much to send your kids to a traditional Orthodox Jewish school than to a modern Orthodox Jewish school. Yeah, so I, I to, guess that's... You send, send your kids to a modern Orthodox Jewish high school, tuition without, without financial aid is going to run you over $40,000 a year. But you can send, often send your kids to a traditional Orthodox high school for 20000 a year. Yeah, when we discussed this in the past, you know, I mentioned I did food stamps. And when I first got to Burl Park and you know, was integrating into the Hasidic community, um, a lot of the people advising me told me I should uh, apply for um, minimally food stamps and maybe like welfare or, or Medicaid. And I, you know, I had too much pride. I didn't want to do that. Uh, but uh, you know, even the rabbis at the time, that was like, okay, like you got to get on food stamps and, uh, you know, whatever government programs you're eligible for. And I ended up working and ended up, uh, you know, uh, I didn't need to do that, but I ended up working for the person that uh, filled out the forms uh, to do that. And so, the, yeah, so if you're in the, if you make it into the Orthodox community, um, you could live on charity and, uh, you know, government programs and the schools. So even if you have no money um, in, in, you're going to, your kids are going to be able to go to the Orthodox school, the modern Orthodox in Metro Detroit is small enough that I think actually a lot of the converts do end up going to the modern Orthodox school, <clears throat> but it could be a unique situation where there's such a small modern Orthodox community compared to the Orthodox community that there's excess funding um, in scholarship programs to allow the handful of kids of converts from the black hat community to go to the modern Orthodox school. Uh, but like in New York or LA, where you probably have modern Orthodox schools that cost like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year, it would be a completely different, uh, you know, ballpark, and uh, they're not necessarily going to have sympathy on you because you converted to Judaism to give your kid uh, a, a scholarship, and then also, you know, like you're probably among elites that uh, you, you know, like they went to good universities and have professional careers, and uh, you know, just uh, allowing somebody to get a scholarship to their school because they successfully converted to Orthodox Judaism, uh, you know, would not be uh, conducive to. Uh, their children's success. Yeah, so here's another maladaptive thing that I see going on by many people who want to convert to Orthodox Judaism. 
is that they have delusions about the nature of Orthodox Jews. They, they, <laughs> they frequently assume that most Orthodox Jews are close to God. And the reality is that Orthodox Jews are about as susceptible to many of the problems that plague people you know, outside of Orthodox Judaism. So just knowing that someone's an Orthodox Jew doesn't mean that they're more likely to be nice, that they're more likely to be honest, honest in business, doesn't mean that they're you know, less likely to try to sexually take advantage of you or to financially take advantage of you. So here's a very common trajectory I see. People become attracted to Orthodox Judaism because they have all sorts of delusions about the nature of Orthodox Jews. Then when they encounter the reality of Orthodox Jews, and my experience of Orthodox Jews is not universal, but my experience of Orthodox Jews is that they are no more likely to be honest, decent, uh, trustworthy, and non-predatory as people who are not Orthodox Jews. So when they finally start repeatedly getting humiliated and taking advantage of uh, because of their naivete about Orthodox Jews, they then lose lose their enthusiasm, lose their faith in Orthodox Judaism. They become disillusioned and uh, either drop out of the pursuit of Orthodox Judaism or completely drop out of Judaism altogether. Any thoughts on this phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, and we've talked about that uh, you know, many times um, that... Uh, yeah, I mean, and it's unfortunate, and uh, you know, like I, I was, you know, somewhat naive in Brooklyn. Although, yeah, I'm from Detroit, a little street savvy too. But, but uh, you know, you certainly you may not expect uh, your people to scam scam you, steal you, uh, or uh, even to, you know, God forbid, sexual molestation or anything. People are people, and uh, if you have an idealistic view of Jews, uh, they're still just people, and you will be susceptible to. Um, to that but I mean, maybe bring it back because we've talked about this in the past about modern orthodoxy is really like somewhat like an elite status largely due to the social economic structure of america because generally modern orthodox jews exist in upper middle class neighborhoods and on both levels like modern orthodoxy is the best of both worlds hypothesis and just on like a secular non-jewish level the uh, you know the the ability to be modern orthodox you basically have to be upper middle class successful professional earning you know like uh, near a hundred thousand dollars a year which uh, you, you know, let alone generally modern orthodox Jews on a Jewish level need to be able to be to uh, subsist and live in a black hat orthodox community should they need to that like okay modern orthodox Jews might not agree with it. But like almost all modern Orthodox Jews, if they needed to, could go into the black hat section of, of town and participate and live that lifestyle also. So it's it's really you know near like a, if you want to use the word elite, but it's a very difficult status to reach because you have to achieve excellence in two realms, and especially the excellence in the secular realm that is beyond the reach of um you know, most Orthodox Jews and certainly most uh, most converts that uh, you're going to be expected to convert to Orthodox Judaism and pick up all this stuff and also to become a successful uh, you know, professional in the secular world is near impossible. Well, it's certainly challenging and it, it winnows out, you know, the, the numbers of people who can keep up such a challenging way of life. So we've often spoken on this show about the book, Virtually You, The Dangerous Powers of the E-Personality. So 
just to recap those basic points, that there is a compulsive nature of a lot of people's internet use that can be compared to obsessive compulsive disorder. There's often a euphoric high to going online, and we often develop exaggerated personality traits from our online performances. So we often tend to become uh, grandiose. We often tend to become more impulsive in our online personas. We often tend to develop an exaggerated sense of our own abilities. We often share dark things that we wouldn't share if we were getting visual cues from the people we talk to. And so often this new somewhat pathological e-personality then feeds back into our regular self and damages our real life relationships. Uh, would you agree, Duvid, that for, for the live streamers, we've known uh, a, a large number of them have seemed to have developed increasingly negative character traits that can be probably ascribed in part to their live streaming? Yeah, I was thinking, uh, you know, like Adam Green, like, messaged me. He was like, who's, who's this guy, like, Ultra T? And I said, like, you know, like, I don't know. I mean, but like, you know, like, it's like, he's been trolling me for like five years now. And then thinking like my own chat, you know, like, you know, I, I was even joking uh, to another streamer saying like your imaginary friends, like, mm -hmm. you know, these are not people in your chat are really just your imaginary friends. They don't like, I mean, they exist to some extent, uh, but you know, to some extent they, they don't really exist. And, uh, you know, cause I also stream chess. There's a certain element of, you being really good at chess and people might watch and play chess. Although like a lot of people are anonymous too. And yeah, they're just an, uh, imaginary friends and there is basically impossible to convert those into real life. And that's why I've let my viewership go down. Cause like, do I really want to have long-term relationship with imaginary friends? And, uh, and then I could see like, well, if I'm going to say like, you, you know, like uh, you got to tell me who you are, you got to dax yourself to me then, uh, you know, people don't want to do that because I got, you know, like a wide variety of uh, people that don't necessarily like uh, the other type people that view my programming. And so it's like, well, I don't mind telling you who I am, but uh, I don't want uh, other people. It, it actually goes back to when I was in Hasidic Brooklyn, I had a lot of Hasidic friends and they didn't mind being friends with me, but they didn't want their other Hasidic friends to know that they were friends with me or they didn't want to be, you know, my other Hasidic friends for me, like, you know, mention them to them because it wouldn't have fit their overall uh, self-perception of their identity. So like on the streaming level, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a fake personality that most people have developed and, you know, to think, okay, like, I mean, you know, God forbid you got Gunner in the chat or something like that, you know, like five years now, like, uh, um, I mean, he's got identity issues. I'm not, you know, like a psychoanalyze, I'm saying thing good or bad, but, uh, you know, think like, you know, God forbid, like, do I really want to be in a non in chats for like, uh, you know, decades? And, uh, and do I really want to have long-term relationships with uh, imaginary friends? Okay. I want to get back to this topic, but I, I just suddenly flash back to something that you said at the beginning of today's stream that you've often brought up and just ask you a question about, you, you mentioned how the rabbis and the traditional Jewish communities that you're a part of looked at you with a great deal of skepticism due to you having one non-Jewish parent and that made it more difficult for you to find a shidduk, a, a match, a, a marriage in traditional Orthodox Judaism. So here's my open-ended question. Is there 
is it easier for you to blame your, your bachelorhood in particular and other life problems in general on the status of having a non-Jewish parent and the power structure's reactions to that uh, as opposed to um, not having something like that to blame problems on? Um, I don't necessarily blame it, but I mean, certainly it was an important factor tonight because, you know, we've been talking about a lot, the difference between modern orthodoxy and Haredism. So like among the Haredi, it was just kind of accepted that I would marry someone like myself, that it was just like a non-issue. Like, of course, you're not going to marry within our community. It's just not going to happen. Like it, it doesn't happen. We don't do that. And, and, you know, even like my local modern orthodox community, you know, generally they're like, your mother's Jewish, you're hundred percent Jewish. Um, but uh, the difference in Karate culture, it was just like a given that I would not be able to marry within their community. And, and at best I would marry someone else that uh, you know, tried to integrate in their community like myself. And they had people like that. So like in the large, you know, Hasidic community. Wait, wait, that wasn't, this is, wasn't my question. I was just asking, do you get a psychic payoff to having a ready-made narrative that explains your, your problems and difficulties and failures in life? No, no, I don't, I don't consider it like a excuse or, or reason. My, I think my, my status of, uh, with Judaism is one of the, you know, the, the larger reasons I haven't been able to successfully marry. And, uh, that would go across the board, like, you know, saying like, uh, you know, if I'm going to marry a non-Jew, uh, then, you know, what, what's with my Jewish status. And I never, you know, kind of like a failed Balchuva. So, uh, I mean, some, some extent you, like, if I just jumped in and wanted to get married, it might've been a good excuse for me to, uh, avoid dating and avoid getting married was my kind of like failed Jewish status that, uh, but I don't necessarily, it probably on the other end that I've used it as an excuse to not date and not get married as opposed to a personal excuse I give myself for, for blaming Judaism for being single. So I'll give you, I've got my own, you know, ready, handy narratives about failures. So if someone's asked me, hey, you know, Luke, you're 57, you, you have some abilities, why have you never married? I've got a ready-made narrative. I'll just say, unfortunately, I've been vegetarian my whole life. And until two years ago, I've had horrible health. So there's my like ready-made narrative that, that explains my failures. It's much easier for me to have that ready-made narrative, just ready to go, ready to hand off to anyone who asks, rather than say uh, it's a result of you know who I am and my own poor choices and my own poor uh, character. So you've sent me links about, I think, narrative therapy. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts that you want to share on, on the relief that uh, you may get or other people may get from having a ready-made narrative ready to go that explains, you know, most or all of one's failures in life? Yeah, well, narrative identity is a psychological theory of identity. And then based on that, there's a specific type of psychotherapy that's narrative therapy. So like narrative identity is, I don't think it's controversial. It's one of the main theories of identity in psychology and if you prescribe to that there to that uh, school of identity, then there would be a specific uh, therapy based on that. And uh, yeah, I guess I'm like you. So people ask me like, 
why you're not married generally, you know, or, you know, a lot of people even assume I'm married or, or you ask me about my children. And, you know, so I never found the right woman and I'm kind of eccentric and it was uh, you know, very difficult for me to find the right woman. And if they ask me more about that, uh, you might, my, my relationship to Judaism would just be one of the reasons that, uh, that I'm eccentric. Um, but I'm not sure if you want to go. Well, do you get relief from having like a ready-made explanation, a, a ready-made narrative to offer people who ask, you know, embarrassing personal questions like this? Well, I don't know if it's relief. I mean, like, I, I put like narrative is not like an excuse. Narrative is a, a factual part of identity. My identity is my narrative and saying like, I am the person who went to Israel at 18 and uh, became ultra Orthodox and, you know, all these various things. That's the factual that you, you there, as opposed to, uh, I mean, there's role identity theory, and then there might be trait identity theory to say that my identity is a set of characteristics that are defining of me um, as opposed to my identity is based off of my life story. And well, yeah, so but you, you keep wanting to abstract away from the, the more personal question. If you don't want to answer the personal question, that that's fine. But uh, what, do you, what do you do when people ask you embarrassing questions, you know, bringing to light things that you're not thrilled about? I, I usually use self-deprecating humor. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe that's kind of what you're doing also, but, but, uh, you know, someone does press me, I'll just say something self-deprecating and, and, and if they respond on it, I, I might go, you know, like, uh, you know, if I see that they're, they kind of, uh, you are taking the attitude that, uh, well, what, what's wrong with you? Like, there's obviously something wrong with you. And then, you know, they're just trying to figure out what's wrong with me. Then I'll just use some sort of, uh, you know, self-deprecating form of humor to try to give them. Uh, some bit of embarrassing personal information about myself or that could you know make them understand like oh there's something wrong with you and that explains why you are who you are and uh, if that's kind of what you think you're doing yeah 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 so let, let me just keep <laughs> drilling here kind of like a dentist on a sore tooth but uh would you agree with me that w one of the greatest resources you can have is to have you know a valid basis for liking and respecting yourself yeah, I mean, there's healthy uh, realism, and and you know that's part of narrative identity and the dissonance between the false narrative that I feed myself, or or it could be a distorted negative narrative, uh, versus uh, you know so to say the the actual true narrative of who you are and why you became the way you are, and uh, you know so narrative therapy would try to work out something like that, like who is the real you, what are the false narratives you've built built up versus the objective life experience you have what is the narrative that you portray to other people and why does that cause us to get into problems and in terms of like if you know you want to you maybe me and you you know the the biggest fault anyone would you basically say like well you're both old bachelors like there must obviously be something wrong with you that you've both you know that we've both failed in uh you know one of the most fundamental things of what it means to be a man and in some sort of like narrative therapy you know, to say well what's your narrative what's your story that leads to you being here today and if it's like you know we're focusing on this failure that we both admit that we both have failed to build up uh families um i've never seen a narrative therapist i don't know how they would deal deal with it like i showed you that mcadams book just to show you that there was a thing and i thought you'd find it interesting i don't know if uh, i don't even know of any like local people who do narrative therapy or how they'd go about it
Yeah, so uh, for me, one of the advantages of uh, live streaming and having to interact with strangers is that you know strangers will find it easier to give you honest feedback or to ask you know honest questions than than uh, people you know face to face. And also, one of the advantages of getting older is that we can get better at writing or having in our head some kind of narrative for our life that enables us to feel some kind of valid self-respect and self-regard. Do, do you agree that getting older makes it easier to form a narrative? I mean, what do you do in your own head when painful things come up for you and you're kind of wrestling or uncomfortable with you know, some part of your life? Have you found as you've aged, you become better at developing some kind of a coping narrative about why you are where you are where you are in life or if you found benefit from the sometimes brutal exchange with strangers online about the state of your life and any impetus that that may have provided for developing a, a narrative of your life that works for you look i have definitely overanalyzed this and researched it and thought about it uh you're probably more than most people. So I largely accept that it's beyond my knowledge level that, you know, like the multiple truth hypothesis, that there's some theoretically like objective narrative or who I am. And then I have multiple possible narratives that explain me. And then there's other people, including you know my, my family and loved ones, people who've known me, uh, how people perceive me that have alternative narratives uh, you know, versus we were talking like like truth and the correspondence view of truth. So, you know, if you're going to say theoretically, there's one truth, one narrative that truly corresponds to who I am versus saying there's elements of truth in all the various narratives and like a role identity that uh, depending on the situation, I might fall into a role. And, and you know, we've been talking long enough that I, I'm more on the depressive side. Maybe you're on the more happy side. So I could accept kind of like, self-deprecating situations of uh you know just like okay maybe i'm messed up uh you know, maybe no one does like me and uh you know so i might even dwell too much on narratives like that and, and you might have the opposite issue where uh you're you're focusing on overly positive narratives yeah i can't live stream really effectively unless i'm in the middle of some kind of coherent at least for me anyway, narrative of my life that enables me to like and respect myself. So often when you don't see me live streaming or hardly live streaming for, for weeks on end, it's because my narrative of myself has has blown up. <laughs> and so there were years where I hardly made any YouTube videos between 2012 and 2014 because I couldn't I couldn't sustain a a positive, sufficiently positive and respectworthy narrative of my life that would enable me to come online and to you know, bear my soul, so to speak. So does any of that ring true for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, live streaming definitely blew up my narrative. And you just mentioned like, you know, Gunner in the chat or something like that. You know, just to have like kind of like consistent negative feedback or, or trolling. And, you know, like for years, you just like anything I do, like, like that's a lie. That's not true. Um, is much more in your face than reality. Like you could, people might be thinking that, like I was saying, like, you know, I went to the local shul 
and it's like well you know i might have a fear factor that's what people are thinking but no one said that no one treated me uh you know poorly but uh you know streaming like people are definitely you know critical even like uh um you know i mean gunner like even halsey if you said like you know like rejecting that i'm jewish like i like i lied i made up going to israel i made up studying yeshiva and i could see that like i could see like you know probably i walk around and think you're not a real jew you didn't really study in israel or or something like that and there's probably people thinking that but the, you know I, i've never get, been confronted on that but like the internet i would say it's almost like always every time i present myself like it's always like you're not really jewish you didn't really you know do these things and uh that's what led me to my uh my research and so you're different because you're streaming i mean you're, you're similar to me in some ways but your streaming is also a lot about you and you tell a lot of personal stories as opposed to my streaming is much less about me and i'm just the guy who's like doing research sharing some interesting things that uh you know i'm thinking about and saying like i mean certainly a large part of your streaming is that also but uh you know generally when i stream it's not about me at all and just like i'll be talking about this topic and uh and then occasionally like I'll, I'll throw in like a personal story a little information uh about myself and then it's more a question of like establishing expertise and and uh you know for the audience and that's still difficult i still don't have a narrative where like half the people you know who watch my own stuff is like you don't know what you're talking about i don't even know what i'm watching you and then we're like well well, well then stop watching and that's why i'm down to just like a handful of viewers because i wasn't able to really come up with a narrative that made sense to myself and um and the viewers so you know like maybe constantly trying to reinvent myself but like you know god forbid i'm an old man uh you know i can't really constantly be reinventing myself so um you know, okay kinda... let me let me jump in um so i was just reading an essay in the london review of books uh it's a book review by Lauren Belant, the late Lauren Belant, on the inconvenience of other people, and talks about the the dangers of a, attaching or getting to know or introducing other people into your life. That it's it always comes with it frictions and frustrations and inconvenience. So why is it so hard to live with other people? And this is talking about real life interactions, and here's, here's the challenge: knowing someone and being known by somebody brings a threatened inconvenience it means the eruption so an eruption is something that comes out like a volcano is an eruption an eruption is when something comes in so when you are known by somebody when you bring someone into your life there's a threatened eruption of someone else comes into your fantasy of having a coherent self that that they can reveal things to you that can blow up your own fantasy of having a coherent self your own fantasy of a coherent narrative for your life is there anything there that you want to comment on i think that's the point i was making that i've accepted that i don't have a coherent self um and maybe before i started streaming i did think i had a coherent self and uh you know that's why you know i started my research or came up with my multiple truth hypothesis i'm constantly studying psychology i mentioned like narrative identity role identity I think that's in line with the best knowledge of experts on the topic is that, uh, you know, the, this concept of coherent self uh, does not correspond to reality. Okay, so let me read to you some notes I made on how live streaming can make you a better man. Frequently it makes people worse, but here are some ways that it can make you better. It can teach you 
the importance of taking responsibility for your words because if you say things about people online, it will frequently get back to them. So you either have to stand behind your words or you need to apologize for them. So this, this accountability that uh, should accompany honorable live streaming is a method of becoming a, a better man. Any thoughts? Yeah, I would definitely say like something that was never part of my life, but now I feel confident to like public speaking. I think I could do public speaking now. And I, I learned that from streaming and uh, you know, the ability to get the negative feedback that you're unlikely to actually get uh, in real life. Um, you know, certainly part of streaming could make you a, a better man. And then also uh, you know, why, why I first started streaming was topically that I just wanted to have conversations about the type topics that very rarely can I find a setting or a space of time where a group of people would discuss this topic. Uh, but online, I was able to uh, find people interested in the same topic and then have hours and hours of conversation just on the given area of uh, interest. Okay, great. And, Go ahead, finish your thought. Yeah, and then even that also would relate to the negative feedback because, uh, you know, once you're, you know, so like, you know, just me and you are talking about Judaism, you know, people are going to, you know, you're out there and you might get positive feedback and that uh, works to the negative feedback to like, you don't know what you're talking about or that's not right. And it doesn't always have to be like uh, um, egoistic. Uh, you know, sometimes you could gather expertise, like, you know, we're just saying you're just talking about a topic, and then all of a sudden you have the ability to talk to uh, some of the biggest experts in the world on the topic due to the power of uh, the internet and due to, the, you know, the fact that most people in real life don't talk about, uh, you know, don't get together just to discuss these narrow topics and that the big experts on the field who uh, specialize in talking about these narrow topics are likely to be much more likely to be willing to join your internet circle, especially if it's dedicated to uh, you know, their, their narrow topic of expertise. So I often say that people sh should normally get most of their meaning and purpose in life from their family, extended family, uh, friends, community, uh, profession, and, and hobbies. But there are people like me and like you who will, will just go out of our minds with to extended conversation on like normal things like food and, and drink and uh, raising kids and like the, the, the mundane topics that seem to dominate most conversations, I think would drive people like you and me crazy. At least they drive me crazy after a time. I know in Orthodox Judaism that uh, frequently Orthodox Jews can spend hours talking about food and drink. And that just drives me out of my mind. So for me to, to feel that I have a life filled with meaning. I have to constantly be seeking truth about the, the wider world. Uh, I assume that's the same for you. Yeah. And I hate repetitive conversations. So even like you were saying, most people, like you, if you're talking like Orthodox Jewish circles where they're talking about that, not only do they talk about it for hours, but they're actually repetitive conversations. And like, if you have Sabbath with the same people over years, you know, in, in like, you know, you say like objectively, we've had basically this exact same conversation 10 times. That's why sometimes I'll pop in the chat on the stream and I'll, and I'll joke, like, is this a repeat? Uh, you know, like if you had like Babs or Brundle on or something, and there's some form of like role identity of comfortability within a conversation where there's a comfortability to just repeat 
conversations and maybe the people don't realize they're repeating the conversation, but I think on some level uh, they do. And there's just the comfortability factor in doing that. So I want new information. And I think the other day you were talking about, you're just the heuristic, like you could assume like your, your mom, your best friend, your worst enemy is watching. And I quit back like, no, my mom does has no interest in these topics. And you know, if you're talking about a given topic, um, your best friend, your family members, uh, just aren't interested, they're not going to watch. Like, you know, if you, if you did as, you know, like oh, I gave the example, like chess playing and uh, you know, like maybe someone like, okay, like you're going to learn how to play chess just for me because it's really important to me. And then maybe you'd become a chess player, but like, don't I mean generally you could have a long-term friendship and just be like, oh, he really enjoys this and I've never done it. And so whenever he does it, like I just tune out, it's not interesting to me. And so I think that's also you're part of streaming. My dad plays internet chess sometimes and my mom still doesn't even know how to play the game. Um, so I think that's could be normal and healthy in the internet. You know, the, the internet just is a tool like chat GPT. It's just a tool that could be positive or negative, And that could be one of the positive uh, aspects of it. And another possible positive aspect of live streaming is that I find it's the most demanding thing that I typically do. I get more drained from live streaming than almost anything else except for the most intense cognitive labor. But uh, overall, I find live streaming with its multiple cognitive loads, such as checking sound quality, visual quality, uh, preparing topics to discuss, queuing up uh, things to play, uh, interacting with the, the chat, noticing how the stream is flowing over multiple platforms at once, that it's a real cognitive and emotional workout. Uh, do, do you find it such a, an intense workout? How would you place it compared to other tests in your life? Yeah, definitely. Although I would, what I mentioned, public speaking, and, and, and I'm not sure if you ever were able to move into public speaking, but I would assume public speaking is more demanding. And you know, really, it's only happened at like the Hare Krishna temple. But I remember like a few times where I spoke in front of everybody even just briefly and they had like the microphone the sound system there might have been a pretty big crowd like 50 to 100 people and uh, even if it was like open mic or topical where people were just introducing himself and when uh, you know you like you speak into the microphone and you hear your voice echoing through the whole hall and uh, you know it's loud um, so I'm not sure if you have any experience in public speaking but like I, or if you'd agree with me that presumably public speaking is even more demanding yeah, I've I've had you know my share of uh, public speaking experience. I've even been the scholar in residence at one synagogue in Los Angeles. Uh, let me go back to my blog post here on ways that uh, live. Do you streaming... have a memory of that feel like when you first speak in the yeah, microphone? Yeah, it's very. In... Well, it's very. It's it's it's, uh, it's very intense. But I find this is similar to public speaking. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say that public speaking is more demanding than than this. I'd say it's equally demanding because this is a form of public speaking. So here's my next point on how live streaming can make you a better man. You get a regular test for prioritizing your own well-being or the well-being of your online production. So do you put the priority on your real self or on your internet self? So the more priority you put on your e-personality, usually the more off track you get in life. So there's a constant stimulus that then immediately spits out feedback about your direction in life. So any thoughts on live streaming as a test for your ability to conduct self-care or to disregard your self-care 
in your pursuit of a virtual personality? Yeah, it might be like a caveat of actually having an audience because like, you know, I mean, thank God you were able to build up a reasonable audience or become somewhat of a public figure, at least an e-figure where there's maybe even hundreds of thousands of people who know who you are or hundreds of people who check out um, almost everything that you say as opposed to, you know, most people have no audience or you maybe TikTok is that way. They get a whole bunch of views and, you know, you don't know your imaginary friends, like, you know, if they're just part of a TikTok algorithm or random people in China. So I, mean, I think you'd have to differentiate to being in front of an actual legitimate audience. And then how did you get that audience to, you know, now you're interacting in front of an audience that I think most people have never necessarily experienced that they've never act, interacted in front of an audience. Um, so I, I don't know if you're try, making that differentiation to actually having an audience and then you'd have the narrative factor of, well, how do you have an audience? How did it come to be that you have an audience and now you're talking about uh, the capacity to interact in front of an audience as opposed to most people who've never had an audience? Well, I'm just talking about those who have an audience. So the, the typical thing that I will produce, uh, considering it's going out on five or six platforms, like cumulative views combined with uh, podcast you know, listens. So typical video will have you know, anywhere from 400 to, you know, a thousand or, or more uh, views or listens. So that's an audience. I'm just taking the audience for granted in, in my point. Uh, let me go on to my next point here. Until I streamed or like, like I never had that even now, like, you know, I have a smaller imprint, but you get a few hundred views. And then I remember when I first started streaming, it was really, you know, after I met you and then I, I you know, I was putting up videos in some of my videos even got like a few thousand views and in some comments, but they weren't streaming. So I, it just, you, when you were saying that, it, you know, it's like uh, your position of privilege to uh, be talking about like, you know, just the presumed, like when I talk, like I have an audience. Okay. Uh, next, next point. Uh, you, by doing a regular live stream, you have to learn to make peace with making mistakes and not doing as well as you hope. I mean, you're, you're always going to be, uh, somewhat frustrated by things that you forgot to say, by things you didn't phrase as eloquently as you wished. I, I know when I start a show, there are many topics I want to explore, many ideas and things, narratives that I want to develop. But as soon as I press the the live stream button to, to go live, the technical and social demands of the show just eat away at much of my cognitive power. My conversational palate immediately narrows, you know, becomes much more compressed than what I anticipated. I have to lean much more on my notes as the ideas and narratives leave my head. I tend to not write down as many notes as would be optimal. I consistently overestimate my ability to retain ideas in my head without writing things down. So there are so many things to look after with a live show, with sound quality being number one. Uh, paying attention to one aspect of your show takes you away from other things. For example, I always try to write down timestamps on every show, but when I'm doing that, I'm not paying attention to anything else. I'm not paying as much attention to listening. I can't be speaking while I'm writing down timestamps. So one way that doing a live stream can make you a better man is that you have to make peace with your imperfection and the imperfection of creating something like a live stream with its multiple demands. Any thoughts? Yeah, just as you were saying that, I, I was remembering why I lived in Manhattan and I had my you know, rapper friend roommate and... 
you know, that that was towards the advent, like Facebook just came out during that period. Like, in effect, it, it, it was even before Facebook came out and, uh, you know, maybe there was a MySpace or something, but he would spend an inordinate amount of time practicing his rhymes. And we also had like a big mirror and like he would spend like hours just staring at himself in the mirror. And sometimes we would both be there and we would both just kind of like stare at ourselves in front of the mirror. And I was more doing like self-reflection, like who am I? Um, although, you know, he was, you know, had rhymes. He was trying to become famous. He was doing pickup artistry, you know, maybe, you know, God forbid, even some drug dealing. And, um, but he was constantly rehearsing and testing things. And then he would go out and try it. He would go to the clubs and he would, uh, you know, because he was a musician and had rhymes and he'd have to, he worked at it, he perfected it. And also his pickup artistry game that he uh, was always working on, on his uh, pickup artistry game. And, you know, so that was before the advent of this technology. And, you know, presumably in Hollywood, uh, you know, that's, everyone did that. And, but now the application of this technology um, may be superior to just uh, practicing in front of a mirror. And I don't know if, you know, you obviously you're old enough to, uh, you, whether you did it yourself to, uh, you practice in front of a mirror. And so even in yeshiva, like, uh, you know, as people start becoming rabbis, you know, you got to practice your sermon. And uh, many times, like I've sat there for people when they practice their sermon. And, uh, you know, so just when you were saying that, it was making me go back to the old days where people did that kind of things for, uh, you know, in front of a mirror. Yeah, it's uh, it's a mirror. It's a mirror to your soul. It's a mirror to your mind, in addition to the, the physical mirror that happens when you live stream. And people notice when you're looking, you know, overweight, when you've lost weight, when you're looking uh, more buff, less buff, when you're looking healthier or sicker. So you're getting immediate feedback. You're often getting the kind of brutal feedback that you don't get from people face to face. Uh, another way that you can grow through live streaming is to, you have to recognize the reality is most people are better off, you know, without your show that other people, most people have, you know, more important priorities than your show. And that many people who are once key parts of your show, such as my show, have moved on for very good reasons. So if you accept these realities, it better situates you in reality and you are much better off in life when you're at ease with reality as opposed to denying reality. So any thoughts on these points? Yeah, I always stress, you know, Church of Entropy or other the value proposition. And, you know, I saw the guy Ben Thorpe, uh, you know, he's making his rounds. His daughter's getting bigger. She's like, you know, almost co-host on the kill stream and uh, you're getting either like uh, somewhat in the alt-right, but uh, you know, even different uh, spheres of the internet. And he had this like list of like, you know, supposedly people that were scared to debate him. And, you know, I didn't have a chance to speak with him. I don't even know if he would accept the feedback, but it's saying like, well, those guys are professionally like the value proposition. Most of those people have moved into the period where this is what they do for a living. And like, you got to pay them. I always stress to people like uh, the best way to get people to stream with you is to pay them. And almost no one wanted to do that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like most of these people that they, they, they do this, they do it for a living. And if you want them to appear in your program, the single best way to get them is just to offer them money. And, uh, but any form of the value proposition, the value to you as, as a streamer, the value to the listeners, the value to the people in the chat, the value to uh, your co-host and the guests. And, uh, you know, should always have that in mind. And sometimes people will do it when there's a negative value proposition. 
and if the value and maybe that's some of kind of like the negative judaic attitude where you're always thinking like it's in your best interest like i know what's best for you goy uh type you know value propositioning uh but uh i don't, I don't know if you think in terms of like value proposition like that or if you think there's a judaic characteristic to uh you know thinking in terms of the value proposition well i, I do think in terms of value proposition that's recognizing that checking out a live stream is not in most people's best interest that they should have other priorities aside from one's own production. Haven't thought about the Jewish dimension to that. Let me move on to my. Or next... just push back when you're just saying like, well, I mean, God forbid, like you, we got bad programming. It's not in there. Uh, but it's saying that if the programming we were making was in their best interest to watch, then they would watch. So that's like the self-improvement level. So like, why is our viewership down? Because, the value proposition has shifted and were we able to come up with a way to move the value proposition back in favor of the viewer that would be how you would gain um, viewership and saying like that's how i came onto your program the value proposition was there i wanted to hear from i wanted to hear from you know these people then on the alt-right and i wanted to hear them talking to a jew and you were the one putting that together and that's how i ended up in your audience because the value proposition was there and you know sometimes you know like is show business so it could be impossible to always have the value proposition in your favor well also it's the value proposition for whom so if i do a show that requires a minimum iq of 120 to benefit from or to enjoy that's a much smaller potential audience that's about five percent of the potential audience as opposed to doing a show where you only need a minimum iq of 100 to enjoy uh, but there is also a good incentive for personal growth through live streaming here in that do you put the interests of the viewer at at the forefront of your head? So is it is it just that I want to get something off my chest or do I take the time to empathize with what the viewer wants and I may want to produce a show that's that has a minimum IQ of 120 to be able to access it, but even then... I can do a show that displays considerable empathy for the viewer, even the high IQ viewer, or I can do a show that demonstrates, you know, no empathy for the viewer. It's just simply what I want to get off my chest. Anything you want to comment on? Yeah, I mean, you do a lot of things to make it more easy for the viewer. Like, I mean, you timestamp a table of contents, although you don't necessarily... Um, you'll predate your programs and tell people, you know, like what, what to expect or, you know, something, you I mean, you put a title in, although it's not necessarily always what you're talking about, uh, but you do considerable amount of effort to make it easier for the viewer. And I think the general model for live streaming is a business model. And maybe you are successful for a small period of time. And I call it like the destiny model of live streaming is you get on a big platform, you get, enough people from that big platform over to your platform and then you just review other people's content and, and count the super chats and uh you know when you were in warski that was you know, probably what you were somewhat capable of doing like you know once you appeared there you had a lot of people who knew who you are tuned into your channel and then you could kind of just review other people's content and i call it, you know, like the destiny model because he's one of the few streamers out there where you know just uh, getting on his program could uh, put you in an opportunity where you have a few hundred people watching and then what are you going to do for those few hundred people 
you're just going to uh, review what they pay you to review and count the super chats, hopefully. And, and if you take off, you, you uh, continue. And if your audience, uh, you know, dwindles. I, I don't know if you agree that that's kind of the, you know, the generic streamer model right now of getting on a bigger platform, getting those people to migrate to you, and then just reviewing content. Right. That's that's a business model that's effective, and it's also a model that's reasonably effective to get views. But uh, intellectual work almost never pays for itself. And so if you're going to produce intellectual content, it would be unrealistic to ever expect that it will pay for itself. It's just not going to happen. So I decided to primarily produce intellectual content on my live stream, so I don't expect them to pay for themselves and, and I don't use like a Destiny model or a Nick Fuentes model or any of these other models for people who are just, you know, pouring out moronic content. Yeah, and then, you know, almost the benevolence goes, like if you're so smart that you could produce intellectual content, you're probably so smart to realize that like, it's not a good way to make money. And then kind of like, well, like you're rich, right? Like you're an old man and you're intellectual, so you're probably rich. You're not doing this to make money. And uh, which is somewhat of a reasonable presumption to, uh, you know, so a lot of the, you know, streamers, like if you're a professor, that's why a lot of the guys, like you just got to pay them because they're professors and they need the money and you want them to appear on your channel. You got to pay them or a lot, you know, a lot, you know, God forbid, most intellectuals uh, never actually financially uh, became wealthy. Some of them upper middle class and uh, they make their money by getting paid to appear on shows like i mean even someone like paul gottfried or something i don't know i think we discussed i don't know if you ever paid guests or something like that I, i've but almost some... never almost never paid paid a guest so professors almost never get paid they are paid by the state or private institutions financing their professorships right they, they very rarely get paid for appearing on a live stream yeah, I mean, I don't think live stream would be the type thing, but I, mean, I give the, I don't know, like Paul Gottfried or something like that. Uh, if he would be an example, maybe he would be the type guy who, if you paid him, he would appear on your show. And he might, you know, like, I mean, there are a lot of uh, small time intellectuals and even the super chat model of, but saying the people are, are trying to make money at it. But then it's, you know, the paradox of, you know, like the chess players paradox, of like, oh, you're so smart. How come you're broke? And like you're, you're smart well, enough to be the greatest. There's no paradox there. Intellectual life does not pay for itself. That's something that's just 99.99% true. Uh, those who are intellectuals and they found a way to make money, it's usually because they are running some kind of con scheme where they are pretending to present, you know, profundity that uh, they're not really doing. Yeah, but the Andrew Tate model where, um, you know, I, I thought the, I'm following him. And I think the one thing that I've, speculated that uh, very few people have backed up is that he is not actually that rich and that you know maybe at most he's a small-time millionaire and he may not even have that much money at all but uh, for his business model he portrays it like he's extremely wealthy and he's just doing this because he wants to give back and share the information uh well meanwhile you know actually he's doing it because that's the main source of his uh money but uh you know that level of intellectual content like if you're, if you're saying like uh I'm doing this to give back. I'm doing it to share some of my research versus the alternative uh, motivation, like you're doing it for gain and then it turns into credibility. You know, like, uh, I mean, I think it's a reasonable thing to ask. I mean, you, you just kind of, I mean, you gave a reasonable answer. I don't necessarily disagree with it. But I think no, the question I don't. Is, yeah, I don't, if, don't you're so smart, if you're so smart, how come you're not rich is actually a very reasonable question to ask. 
Yeah, I don't think it is because intellectual life does not pay for itself. That's just a fact of life. And so I don't uh, do live streams primarily to create credibility for myself or I forgot the other alternative. I do it because this is who I am. This is what I enjoy. So for me, this is primarily a hobby. I'm doing something I enjoy equivalent to those who paint because they like to paint or those who garden who like to garden. Well, if your credibility, and okay, you have a little, I mean, you're an author, you have some accomplishments, you're, you're a known man and, uh, you know, some level of Hollywood, uh, but you said that your credibility is established outside of streaming and then there are people who want to know about you and you're making yourself available or to put off a certain message through streaming as opposed to um, your credibility needing to be established within the venue of streaming. And, you know, both are possible and maybe when you, you know, you're as a blogger or streamer, um, you know, you're saying your credibility is established through your real life. And then the streaming is just the way you make yourself publicly available as opposed to actually trying to establish credibility. through. No, streaming. I didn't say anything like that. I said I live stream because it's something I enjoy. And uh, that, that was my point. But anyway, you made your, your point there repeatedly. So let me move on to. Another way not that a generic you also when I said you I didn't I, I meant like a generic you like anybody who was streaming not necessarily you right good point uh, so another way that you can become a better man through live streaming is that you can learn to stand on your own two feet and not need audience approval so often on the these live streams I will say things that every single person in the chat will strongly disagree with and you also constantly having to face choices of risking and possibly losing relationships for the sake of saying what you believe to be true this is a good test in life you can always cuck to save your relationships or you can make the other mistake and just heedlessly burn your relationships or you can try to steer a middle path you know valuing both your relationships and the pursuit of truth and make considered careful individual choices so learning to stand on your own two feet is one of the possible benefits to gain from live streaming avoiding audience capture and staying in integrity with what you believe to be true. Any thoughts on this, David? Yeah, I agree. Although it goes back to what I was just saying before that it's from a point of privilege where you actually have an audience because most people, if they stream, no one's going to listen to them. And, you know, to the point where I have an audience and even if I don't cater to my audience, I still have an audience which is a state of privilege and, you know, it's like the generic you as a person who has credibility outside and makes themselves publicly available. And you're saying, well, I want to make myself publicly available to do what I want, not what the audience wants. And the audience just in appreciation of me making myself publicly available will tune in for what I want as opposed to what uh, they want. So you have to know your power level. Uh, you know, it takes a certain power level to be able to do that and uh, you could test your power level because if you your power level is not there, your audience will abandon you. Okay, I'm going to move on. Any final words for today, David? Yeah, you know, just before you messaged me, I was reading that tablet article on like the history of the alt-right. And, you know, if you wanted to set aside a stream, it was a pretty long article and, and I was disappointed because it, it didn't mention like the role, the prominent role that like right-wing Jews Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews played in it and it and it had, you know, kind of like the 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 anti-Semitism or the racism level. Uh, but uh, if you did look at that tablet roll and wanted to go through like a you know, I mean either a memory memory lane or a, you know a, a intellectual analysis of 
what that article got wrong by ignoring the role that Jews played in the uh, formation of the alt-right. I, I found that interesting. Okay, great. To be continued. Uh, thanks. Cool. Thanks, David. Yeah, have a great day. Thanks a lot. Take care. Okay, let me go to Robert Wright here talking with Mickey Kaus about the special prosecutor appointed in the Joe Biden, Hunter Biden story. Impeachable, but well, the key with impeachment, it doesn't have to be a crime. Well, neither is not voting the reason to not vote for someone. Um, so anyway, okay, so so that, maybe the, that's heating up incredibly quickly. And you have like there, there's a, there should be some word for like the, the, the you know Peggy Noonan just sort of said, has now pronounced it's it's a it's a real scandal. Okay, you need like two or three more figures. I was trying to I was arguing with somebody. I was trying to figure out why did people take Watergate so seriously? I mean, it obsessed the nation for months. Mm-hmm. It eventually led to Nixon's impeachment. It was not as corrupt as this. Okay, as this potentially is. And and nobody cares about this, but they cared intensely about Nixon. And why was it? I think it's because the press had more credibility. People, you know, people who, who they trusted to be neutral said this is a real scandal. Nixon lied, but Biden's lied. I don't understand it. So if four or five, two or three more, four or five more people like Peggy Noonan say, like Bob Woodward comes out and says, sorry, this is really bad. This is a real scandal. Yeah, but and two or three other people, I think maybe it will be a scandal. Yeah, but I think the jump from there's a big wall between Peggy Noonan and Bob Woodward. Peggy Noonan is a Wall Street Journal columnist. There's a whole bunch of Wall Street Journal columnists. Who's- yeah, let me fast forward here to some other points on the Hunter Biden scandal. Turn against us. Remember when Vindman, Vindman, Colonel Vindman, in the impeachment hearing of Trump, he, he originally was horribly upset by Trump's phone call trying to bully Zelensky into investigating Burisma and Hunter. The not perfect call? He, the perfect call. Not because he thought uh, that there was a bogus investigation and that Hunter and Burisma weren't guilty, but because it would piss off the Democrats and jeopardize bipartisan support for Ukraine. Uh, right. it, it, you know, so this is the same deal. This is of a piece with that. So uh, uh, it... it, it um, they, they, you know, they may have thought that somehow Biden's revenge power outlasted his office, even you know, lasted even though he was out of office. The only thing I can think of. So, uh, quick, the, yeah, go ahead. We well, could broaden this. You yeah. could broaden the scandal to Obama. How can we do somehow, that? I don't know, but there's been a lot of talk about Obama because of this uh, David Samuel's interview with David Garrow in uh, Who, who's David Garrow? magazine. The biographer of Martin Luther King, who wrote a, a very, very nasty biography of Obama that didn't get any traction, including his letters to his girlfriend where he mused about having sex with men. Yeah. How could, how could that not have any gossip value? Good grief. Uh, why did I only hear about that yesterday? Uh, and, the, and he makes the interesting point that, which I hadn't realized, I had thought Obama, after he left office, had gone Hollywood. He'd spend all his time scouting homes in Palm Springs and, you know, selling, selling TV shows to, to uh, Microsoft and Apple and, you know, and living the life of Hollywood and raking it in. No, he stayed in Washington. He had a, ta- he had a house in Washington. And we never hear a story about what he did in Washington, okay? And get, in Garrow's theory is he was running the fucking government from his townhouse, from his house in Calorama. Uh, uh, he was doing Wait something. a second. Wait, what years is this? This is the Biden presidency, the last four years, three years. Uh, that, no, I, I fear, I, I wish Obama were that engaged. Maybe, maybe he'd uh, ease Joe out of... Uh, contention for the presidency and gives a replacement um uh, well but anyway so the, the crazy extension would be that somehow pissing off joe would also piss off obama and obama really was still a power to be reckoned with so ukraine couldn't afford to piss off obama so they mm. could give money to honor that <laughs> seems pretty strange yeah now, okay, I so, have, so the interview was by david samuels 
of Ga- yes of Geralt. I think we really I think have, I have great doubts about, about Samuels, but that's another story. Since he's I have great doubts about I have great doubts about both of them. Yeah, it was, but it was, it was because of that. Yeah. It was a very interesting issue. Was- I, 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 okay, another clip here from this discussion. Robert the general Ryan, assessment Nikki of Kels. Obama's legacy has certainly soured a bit. Uh, it, it, you know, it was very high when people were saying, "God, I wish for the days of Obama instead of Trump." They were so calm. I do think. Uh, I do think Obamacare was a big step forward. I think he gets credit for that, D- defective as it was. Uh, even if it didn't improve the health of Americans, it, it lowered the anxiety level of Americans. Uh, so more people think they can get insurance. It completely screwed over independent freelance workers, but who cares about them? Uh, mm-hmm. And um, they're fixing that, supposedly. Uh, and uh, uh, there, there, are, there are alarming signs. I, I, I had my first doctor who completely left Medicare and he's on he's on his own. Uh, he, I have to pay him three fifty a visit. That's for starters, and none of it is covered by insurance, not even by my Medigap. So it's strictly out of my pocket. Okay, if four more doctors do that, Medicare is worthless to me, right? So, uh, or I have to. Okay, I just read a great analysis of Barack Obama and Oprah Winfrey, and this is from the late Lauren Balant who was a scholar of affect, meaning of emotion. And she had this read of Obama and Oprah. She says, Oprah's sentimentality always abjures the political, means puts, pushes aside the political. It always sees change as coming from within. It always sees obstacles to change as internal wounds and not structural blockages in the political and wider economic context. Similarly, Obama wanted to believe that through him, we could dissolve in our emotions, what's antagonistic in wider political and economic structures, in social structures, so that the long history of American racism could be dissolved because he will stimulate uh, in us, you know, emotions that will overcome American racism. And then, because we have, Obama has healed us emotionally, he'll bring politics to make structural what has been achieved first in our feelings. So both Oprah and Obama, a classic sentimentalist who view individual feeling as the crucible for political change, and without considering their appeal to our emotions, to our sentiments, we cannot account for their popular appeal, nor for their limitations. I thought that was great analysis. So in 2016, Lauren Ballant showed Obama's Yes We Can advertisements to undergraduates who were too young to have followed the 2008 presidential campaign, and how did her undergraduates react? They began to cry. Right? Until that moment, she says, her students did not know that they had national sentimentality. And the author of this piece says, I once took my English boyfriend to a minor league baseball game, and he welled up at the Star Spangled Banner. That is the power of American affect or American national emotions for you. And the author says, I laughed at him. But Lauren Ballant was generous enough to watch the students cry over Barack Obama and his message of, yes, we can, and conclude that the world is just not a very safe space for people's tender sentiments. And this tenderness means that we would like the world to be different, and we don't want to experience more loss on the way to this different world. So that analysis struck me as brilliant. So you may wonder who is Lauren Ballant and who is the author of this book review piece. Erin McGluck is her name, the author. And 
I've got a brief little video of her here. She is a professor of English. I have a long-standing interest in gender history, um, and so it sort of fits into that that kind of wider trajectory. It's interesting. She kind of speaks with a is this a Valley Girl affect? This is this a Valley Valley Girl accent? How would you describe this American accent? She is a professor at uh, the University of Sheffield in Northern England. My first book, I was really interested in gender in the early modern Venetian Empire and this kind of multi. So she seems to have very much of kind of a, a girl affect in her voice and manner. It's very girly here. It's kind of not very scholarly. Professional multi-ethnic Mediterranean world. Um, and I was looking at the patrician men who were kind of colonial governors and then married women who were actually their own subjects. So. And her, her voice seems swallowed in, in the back of her throat. There isn't a lot of musicality to the voice. It seems, seems very uh, monotone. Who were um, perhaps Greek Orthodox um, and these kind of, yeah, these mixed marriages. Um, but when I finished that book, I really wanted to move beyond um, the kind of patriciate and to look at the experiences of ordinary women and particularly experiences of kind of ordinary motherhood. Um, the patriciate is obviously fascinating and the sources are kind of incredible for, um, for, for those, that kind of group of people. But I, I wanted a bit more of a challenge and I, yeah, wanted to kind of get at these, these experiences of ordinary women. And I think also it's, um, it was a personal preoccupation. I, um, I had a baby and now have a toddler. And so the, um, the very delicate balance between paid work and, and care work is very much on my mind in a kind of personal capacity too. Um, and then I guess the kind of last thing that sort of drew me in this direction is I really felt like um, within early modern history more broadly, the, the kind of ongoing debates about women's work, I think are kind of one of the most vibrant areas of the field. Um, there's amazing, these sort of huge projects on early modern England and Sweden and a lot of scholarship on Italy too. Um, and it just felt like such a kind of vibrant and interesting area to be working where there were really um, kind of current debates about methodology, about the gender division of labor, about this kind of relationship between paid and unpaid work, which I find so fascinating. And so I think all of those kind of things together drew me into this world of sort of or how ordinary women navigated um, this like really difficult boundary, I think, between undertaking paid work for the market and reproductive labor. So why do some people keep ending their sentences in yeah? So according to the chat, it's not Valley Girl speech. This is East Coast liberal arts speak. That's what uh, Elliot Latt says. But why do so many people like this female professor end their sentences in yeah? So most British people, according to Cora, U-U-O-R-A, most British people don't say yeah at the end of a sentence. It would be most prevalent in certain dialects in southeastern England. So this is an an English dialect affectation, it's unusual to hear combined with an American accent. So it's used as an affirmation that the sentence ends. So I think it's better to end your sentences with yeah, rather than just plow on as many people do without really checking in that you're, you know, following along. So it's used as an affirmation that the sentence has ended 
or the series of sentences that precedes its use, right, the, the making of a statement, it's to confirm that the listener understands what has been said. It's often used as a question requiring a response from the listener. That was a great match. Yeah. So other dialects use other forms in a similar way. So some people say eh or eh. So it means do you understand? So different dialects around the British Isles use different words for the same linguistic purpose. So ending your sentence in yeah is not all that common, particularly unusual to see it coming from an American accent. Okay. Here is the... Title story, Arrest Warrants Issued After Boaters Attack Alabama Dock Employee. Police in Montgomery, Alabama have issued four arrest warrants after this viral brawl of videos captured the moment several people attacked a black dock worker over the weekend. ABC's Steve Osunsami has more on the fight and who came to that worker's rescue. The fight that broke out here in Montgomery, Alabama is being celebrated all over the internet for the way police responded and for the way that black eyewitnesses came to this dock worker's rescue. Those guys who parked there were told not to leave it there and they left it there. Witnesses say it started when this crew member in the white uniform tried moving a boat that the owners had parked in this spot. He was trying to make room for a riverboat that was on the way in. That's when a shirtless man came to confront the dock worker, and then his friends came out, and then one of them got violent, beating the crew member. In seconds, there were several people outnumbering him, and this woman even seen kicking him while he was down. When the first punches were thrown, we all, you just felt so helpless for that man. Like, there's five or six of them on him. But all of a sudden, black eyewitnesses who were watching decided it was time to help the man who was being beaten running, even swimming up to the scene, beating back on the people who attacked the man. Police came in minutes, and according to Montgomery's mayor, detained several reckless individuals for attacking a man who was doing his job. Police say they have four active warrants out so far, and there could be more once they get a better look at So this looks to me like five white people wrongfully attacking a black man who's just doing his job this video and they say that the fighting and they mean everyone who was fighting was intolerable steve osinsani abc news okay so let's get a discussion here from gavin mcginnis and anthony camilla to this no. fight this kind of white versus black fight that happened yes. in alabama yes i have it's the most important fight oh. of 2023 oh it's like they will talk about this in a hundred years as they talk about black wall street or exactly you know, this is what it'll be yeah. and it's <laughs> the opposite of what they say yes yes it is right yeah so right. And so and, and I, so <laughs> i've kind of noticed on social media that you know Black people are really taking this as a huge W. And yes, they've been they've been getting tattoos and talking about this and that, tattoos. and training their chair. kids on how to smash people with a chair. Anyway, I was hoping I could just get you guys to comment on that and absolutely and kind of see what what your perspective is. Yeah, we were definitely going to uh, talk about that. It was in the. Um preparation but the chair thing is great because if you remember maybe a year or so ago there was a fight at a waffle house or one of those fucking places and this white chick oh, grabbed yeah. a chair oh, yeah. yeah oh had a chair thrown at her yeah. and she did this ninja move an and airbender and it was pretty much the same vibe everyone was like cool 
Like, Whitey ain't taking their shit anymore. This white chick decided they're going to fight back. They're going to throw shit back, say, fuck you, come on, bring it on. And it was like this moment of white people going, yeah, yeah, we're fighting back. And this episode, black people treat it like it's something that never happens. Oh, it happens. Take the video. Here's what you got to do. Take the video of what happened in uh, Alabama. Uh, run it through a filter where you put the negative on. <laughs> where now white is black and black is white. Now you'll see everything that happens ever, ever, ever on at the beginning anyway. But, but you're, 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 you sound like you're saying that black people are right. It was an example of whites being uh, uh, out of line. The very beginning. I do believe that uh, from what I know about this incident, that those you know five white people who attacked a black man for doing his job, that the five white people were in the wrong and the black man was simply doing his job. Right, that boat that he was untying was parked in a place where it had no permission to park, right? Where there were signs up saying, you know, do not park here. This is for the riverboat. Was two guys, th- there wasn't a security guard. He worked right. at the riverboat. He, no. He like hitched a ride to get over to the shore. Yeah. Um, he unmoored their boat. Yeah. Which he should not be you doing. I think that's. The boat was parked illegally, occupying space that belonged to the riverboat. Piracy. <laughs> I think he could be arrested for. Uh, no, that wasn't piracy. That that was a boat that was parked illegally in a space for the riverboat. R N. Don't say R N, matey. N with a hard R. R with a hard R. <laughs> so then they get matey. mad about the unmooring, and yeah. they punch both him and another white security white guard. security guard side. Right. So that you could argue that was like white on black racism, whatever you fucking want. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. And then after that initial like. 15 seconds. Most amazing part, by the way. A black man swimming. I said on my show, I was like, a black man swimming is like a white man flying. <laughs> but but then after that, it was a complete fucking melee. Yeah. And it was unjustified, the melee. Of course. And it, the, the chair thing, don't be proud of the chair. That was random black people smashing <coughs> a woman on the head with a folding chair. Yeah, with a folding chair. Yeah. So after I, 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 with the blacks who went to support the black worker who was just doing his job and to try to protect him. But then when it turned into a melee where they just started smashing random people, then then obviously that's wrong. Yeah. Nothing to do with anything. They just want to see white people getting hurt and beat up by black people. Right. It's pretty much it. And the majority of videos you see uh, available are black people assaulting white people or Asian people especially. Uh, so when they get a video where you could show something like this, uh, where they can almost justify it, that it was some racial right. white on black thing Alabama. that they came in and helped yeah, they came in. And- I, I do think that initially that there probably was, you know, did, did just my eyes indicated it was a white on black thing for poor reasons initially. And kept a lynching from happening. Right. Like, no, you, it's Shut just, up. again, another group of blacks. And again, at white. this point, all racial bets are off and yeah. blacks are, are just like <clears throat> little Al- baby Al Capones are mobbing, Al Capones. are mobbing random white people for yeah. no reason. So I don't get how you see this as a W. You look terrible. You look terrible. But they, to them, it's awesome. And, and I'll tell you another thing. When black people get upset that uh, white people paint them with a wide brush, you know, they go, oh, wh- how come if uh, stores are getting robbed by black people, uh, you, you follow me around the store? We're individuals. Don't tell me because black people uh, are shoplifting more that because I I walked into your store. You have to be on the lookout. I am an individual. Don't okay. equate me with the rest of black. Well, then you're you're jumping in. Why'd you literally jump in the water? Just because I'm over there. The guy was black. Well, that's... They would never. Because uh, generally speaking, black Americans have stronger in-group identity than white Americans. Right? That's it.
never have gone over there if it was just uh, two white guys getting beat up by other white guys. There's this incredible tribalism with, mm-hmm. with black Americans and with the left. And, and I give him credit for that, by the way. And uh, Horatio says in the chat, there's zero evidence that white attacked the the black guy for being black. They probably would have attacked a white guy. They told the white boat owner to F off. Good point. Yeah, white wish, people should have. I wish that. we had some tribalism. Yeah. But when you see, like, in New Rochelle, where, where Ryan's gym is, uh, there, there was this homeless man who was shot to death, and he was reaching for a cop's gun. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I heard about The community got out, big parade, and I could tell, because Ryan went and interviewed them, I could tell they don't give a fuck about yeah. the details. It's like a blood murder to Crip. Now, that Crip could have murdered that whole, that blood's entire... Yeah, that's just the nature of in-group identity, right? The stronger your in-group identity, the more automatically you'll go to the rescue of your in-group against an out-group when there is a contest. Right, right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter. One of your guys hurt one of my guys. It's a gang mentality. It's yeah. gang mentality. I don't give a fuck about the circumstances. Yes. And whites are constantly obsessed with the circumstances. Yep. To a fault. Like, they overdo it. They have that whole To Kill a Mockingbird thing. Oh, they, they'll go out of their way to try and dispel any uh, theory that maybe the black person was responsible. Right. Well, maybe it was this or that. Or, and then when push comes to shove, if they can't find anything... Uh, t- yeah, ties bind them blind. The, the stronger your in-group identity... That's exactly how you're going to react, whether you're white or black or, or Jewish or gay or, or Muslim. So I've started following the, the Women's World Cup of, of soccer because the Australian team is doing so well and more Australians are watching the Matildas, the name of the national Australian female soccer team. More Australians are watching them play live than all other sporting events in Australia. So it's an opportunity to share a collective attention and consciousness and energy with millions of my fellow Australians. So because I feel an in-group identity as an Australian, in addition to an in-group identity as an American, in addition to an in-group identity as a Los Angelino and a Dallas Cowboy fan and an Orthodox Jew, all right, I've got a lot of in-group identities, but I'm paying a little bit of attention to women's soccer, even though the quality of women's soccer is below that of a good 14-year-old boy's high school team. I'm playing, you know, I'm paying some attention because it's a way for me to join in with my in-group. It's not because the quality of, of women's soccer is so sterling. So I just learned about Lauren Ballant, right? She's, she's I didn't know that there were professors of affect, right? Affect is a fancy academic term for feeling. So... She, she died in 2021. Let me just play a little bit more from her. One of the kind of doxic moment in my work is to say that public spheres are affect worlds. That is, we're attached to the world and the worlds that present themselves to us and the worlds we imagine. And we're, we're, you don't, we don't intend those affective attachments, but we discover those affective attachments. You're born with zero attachments, and then in order to flourish, in order to stay alive, you actually have to have them. And so you can't really be against optimism. You can't be against attachment because you... So she's talking here about her book on optimism but it has a fascinating fascinating title it's it's about the you know the, the downsides or the price paid for optimism it's called cruel optimism and and she just makes some great points here in just a few words that you can't live without attachments if you don't learn to attach to people you'll attach to substances like drugs or alcohol or food or to processes such as gambling addiction sex addiction porn addiction 
right? You can't live without attachment, but as soon as you form attachments, particularly with people, they can blow up your sense of having a coherent narrative for your life. You, 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 living requires you actually to be attached to something. So then what's, what's interesting here is what's the relation between the form of an attachment and the affects that get um, magnetized to that attachment and, and, and the history and situation of, those, of that magnetization of affect is the political and is the social. Okay, so, so I'm interested in you know, how, people, how feelings bind us not only to the people we know but the people we don't know. And how the, even, bound to, even being bound to people we don't know, including, and not just people we don't know, but, but things we don't know, and ideas we don't know, and smells we don't know. The essay says you could be bound to anything, smells, ideas, humans. It doesn't really matter. That form of binding is itself uh, the condition of your flourishing. Therefore, it's not only content, but it's form. And then the question is, how do you, how do you make a better world for the attachment to life that you have, right? So the thing I'm really interested in are the affects of belonging the relation between attachment to the world and the, and, and the feeling of belonging to the world. And what is the relationship between the feeling? Does belonging always feel like belonging, or does it sometimes feel like prison? And does it, does it sometimes feel suffocating, and does it sometimes feel impossible? And does, does belonging feel like foreclosure when it's also the condition of your actual flourishing in the world? Those kinds of questions are really central. And the thing that I want to get to, I'm, I'm going to be writing a, the book after the book after next. Is sort of going to be is <laughs> going to be about the affects of belonging, in particular the affects of the commons. I mean, do we even know what a, what are the affects of of a collective belonging would be, and how how do people even think the commons is now being kind of touted as the way to think about democracy um, without hierarchy or you know the the collection of singularities? But it, you could say it as form. But what? Okay, this is uh, Lauren Ballant, professor of affect, meaning public emotions. She is speaking here back in 2011. What's the, what's the affect of it, and how would you know it when you felt it, if you felt it? Um, and so, uh, so I'm interested, therefore, when Anne was reading, nobody ever willingly abandons a libidinal position, which is one of my favorite phrases for some reason. I mean, think of everything that's, that's in that phrase. Nobody willingly abandons a libidinal position, right? The, the power of the libidinal, of the lustful, of of sex, right, just tends to overwhelm every other consideration. Because it's true, I mean, but also because it's beautiful. Um, I always make a mistake when I say it, which is nobody ever willingly abandons a political position because the political and libidinal are all tied up with each other because people understand at some... Yeah, the political and the libidinal, all right, the, the political and the lustful are tied up with each other in that they give meaning and coherence and, and a narrative to our life. It's how we understand ourselves and whether we're winning or losing at life. Level that their attachment to the political is their attachment to being uh, in the commons, to being attached to being in a collective world. And um, what's the relation between being attached to the political and being attached to politics? Politics, the place where you're always disappointed. And the political, the place where you're always excited. And so it's kind of... So her book is Cruel Optimism, that we that we need things to believe in, but and we need these things that we believe in, they shape our narrative, our sense of self, they give us meaning and purpose in life, yet they will always disappoint us. Like what Tavi was saying about the good-bad object of technology. On the one hand, it's the thing that becomes, it wears out and it becomes broken. And on the other hand, the idea of it is actually something that lights your brain up. You know? And one of the things you could always think about is how optimism and trauma do the same kind of thing. It lights up a part of your brain that makes you non-sovereign. And so the thing that really interests me is the ways that people desire and... Right, so when you're attached to something, 
to someone, to a process or a substance, right? You lose your sovereignty, right? When we bring people into our life, when I have guests on the show, I have to surrender a great deal of my sovereignty. When I bring people into my life and I interact with people, you know, I am giving up a substantial amount of sovereignty. I mean, life is impossible without this, and yet it requires vulnerability and it requires that these these people or processes or substances that we're bringing into our life can absolutely blow up any sense of coherence or meaningful narrative that we have fantasized we've got going on in our life. And don't desire to become non-sovereign. People desire and don't desire to become attached in a way that makes them lose control. And that those forms of losing control are the forms of belonging to the social. Because I want to actually be involved with people I don't know in order to build a world that I can't see yet. That's the political. That's my attachment to the political, right? So, I mean, I'm saying right like you know me, but it really that is my attachment. It's your attachment to the political, too, is my point, you know. Um, that's what the political holds out. It holds out the possibility of a good non-sovereignty. Um, and yet the discourse that we have about what you get when you have democracy is more sovereignty. And yet belonging is all about the possibility of having a world that you could... So you may get a great deal of meaning in your life from your political attachments. And so then you frequently will experience the agony of defeat. You may get a great deal of meaning in life from your attachment to the Dallas Cowboys. And the Dallas Cowboys haven't even been in an NFC championship game for uh, 28 years, right? There's a great deal of pain with being a fan. And what is nationalism but a form of you know, non-rational fandom? You're, you're a fan of a particular people, right? So... The more intense your fandom, the more intense your your cruel attachments here, the the fantasized optimism that sustains our life, right, the more you get outside of the rational, strategic, autonomous, buffered, distant self as envisioned by the Enlightenment, as envisioned as the you know, the highest form of being by moderns, by the liberal left intelligentsia. Right, so fandom is a callback to more traditional ways of being, more traditional ways of experiencing the world with your body, where you have immediate primal responses to you know blood and soil, to family, to your hero system, for example, that marriage is a heterosexual institution, or military should be a heterosexual institution, or that uh, you know, Jesus died for your sins, whatever your hero system, the more traditional your way of experiencing life, the more you come from just these primal responses as opposed to the attenuated, the disciplined, the distant, the reflexive, the buffered, the strategic, autonomous, rational sense of self that is promoted as the highest sense of self by the liberal left intelligentsia. Trust with your non-sovereignty, with your dependence on other people and with the way that you have to be in the world with them to build a life. So it was interesting to me that uh, today's speakers were all about this. And, and by the way, um, uh, I have a blog entry kind of percolating. They take me a really long time uh, called I Prefer To, you know, which is like my answer to Bartleby, you know, the I prefer not to. Like, all, the, all the philosophers in the world are really into preferring not to. And I'm like, I'm into preferring, you know. <laughs> and I think queer theory is into, into preferring. You know, like, 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 would there be a world that would, be, that would deserve our preferring of it? That's what you want in, in, when you try to do politics, is to make a world you could actually desire since you already have a desire for a world. Um, and so it's also very interesting then to think, what do we do for a living? You know, what do critics do? What, what's the point of what 
of, of producing new forms for extending our optimism because being an right so think about being a fan of this show right you have all sorts of expectations for the show that probably more often than not i dash there's all sorts of content that i have produced more often in the past that is compelling that is visceral that is you know immediately grabs you and transports you contains considerable elements of, of spectacle and so you may well come to this show you know hoping for it to regain the glories of the past and yet be continually disappointed intellectuals being optimistic an idea impacted us and then we became different and then we had ideas that we hoped would impact people and then they would become different what what is it that we're what is it that we're doing when we when we write or when we talk or when we teach a class or when we're trying to actually get everyone in sync for the possibility of a transformation which is Stanley Cavell's definition of love is is is, is the attempt to stay in sync with another so I'm not saying I love you but but I, I'm trying to stay in sync with you but that, that's you know but you know people people get excited about that when it's just right so a great theory of human relations is that it revolves around bids you know other people are making a bid for our attention and usually if someone bids for our attention twice and we either actively decline it or ignore it people rarely bid a third and fourth or a fifth time so people are in sync people who have their positive relations with other people they're in sync with other people's bids and they're responding just two people but i'm excited about it when it's the possibility of a world being in sync and then the possibility that the form of being in sync could open up a space where we could say it and take it back where we could be genuinely experimental in our trying to imagine what a new good life is so what everybody was saying today which is really true about uh, cruel optimism is that one of the things it's about is about the relationship between survival and flourishing and that incredibly moving line in the song from company that Anne cited to help us survive being alone is that it to help us survive being alive so help us survive being alive and um, and so the best way to help you survive being alive is to have good relations with your friends and family and community right to have the best possible relations with everyone in your life and one of the things I always say in my work, the uh, female complaint says it really explicitly in the showboat chapter, and it's chapter on musicals, is that what happens all the time in the political is that the difference between zero and one, between not surviving and surviving, starts to foreclose all of our imagination for living, because survival is not a given for almost anybody. And so, but it's really important to hold the space open beyond survival, the space of flourishing. Um, and that's what Jose is also trying to think about. It's like, the, it's like we, you know, in fact... One of the things we do when we're trying to create a critical space is a space where it would be possible to survive and better, and where survival would be the minima. And then, we, and then the, the debate over what politics should do is the debate over the minima. What should the minima be that would constitute life so that we could imagine what flourishing would be, and that flourishing is what the good life is. And what So you don't notice trads or conservatives or right-wing or reactionary people talking much about human flourishing, right? So... On the left, there's much more of an ethos of follow your bliss. And on the right, there's much more of an ethos of do your duty. So for people on the right, meaning is something that exists outside of yourself, most likely in the form of your community, your, your tribe, or your nation. And to the extent that you live up to this external framework for meaning, that's the extent to which you will have meaning and that you will flourish, even though people on the right don't really talk much about human flourishing but people on the left meaning is something that we create in our own brains 
okay, generally speaking, this is a more you know, liberal, individualist perspective that we can create meaning in our own minds, you know, aside from what the community and the tribe and the nation believes constitutes meaning. This is the buffered identity. Buffered meaning that you're protected from the outside world, that you can just create meaning on your own. The right-wing perspective is that we lead porous identities, that what's going on outside of us has a profound effect on us. It has a more profound effect than anything, generally speaking, that our rational minds can conceive. So on the right, we see meaning as something that exists outside of ourselves that we conform to. On the left, we pursue our bliss, construct meaning you know, inside our own buffered, reflexive, autonomous, strategic, rational identity. One of the things we're so so uh, cruel optimism is 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 coming out at a moment where there is no escapology possible, you know, in a certain sense, because what there is is the aspiration for a present that we could live in. You know, it's not we can't presume the present. And this talk was delivered in 2011. And hope for a future. We we can't even presume the present. So we're hoping for a present that we could that we could live in and we could flourish in. And uh, and what's hard is that. So many of the infrastructures of continuity that have generated the good life since the 1940s in the United States and in social democracies all over the world have collapsed. Um, right. So a right-wing perspective on this would blame it on civil rights legislation, which has made our attachment to the tr traditional constitution attenuated, which has diminished our right to private property, has diminished our right to freedom of association, so has hacked away at the traditional ties that sustain people and enable human flourishing, right? Having more freedom of association, more freedom with your private property so that you can create the kind of life you want with the people that you want to be close to. For those like Lauren Belland, who's on the left, they blame the lack of human flourishing on inadequate social welfare spending. So that it's, 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 it's incredibly hard to imagine. And we no longer have an anchor for what we project out as the good life. So this is an opportunity for us as critics and thinkers and artists is to think, well, what do we want the good life to be collectively? Is it possible? What are, what, what is, it, is it just not not surviving? You know, is it just the possibility of survival that would be the good life? Or can we imagine something that we would be willing to have, that we would be willing to fight for? And importantly, that we would be willing to lose for because the reorganization of life, as cruel optimism says, the reorganization of life requires you to lose your object and to be in the space beyond your object where you can actually encounter other humans and build a world with them. Um, and it means not knowing, not, no longer having the archaic fantasy of the good life that you uh, grew up with or that uh, organized the world for you, but actually kind of think, well, that good life didn't really work well, too well for too many people, and it turned out that like only six people could get it. And everybody else, what they, were, what they were floating on was the fantasy. It was a phantasmatic cushion. And now the phantasmatic cushion has lost its air, or choose your metaphor. Um, um, and, so, and nonetheless, we need the possibility of an imaginary for how, what to build toward that we have to be willing to lose for, we have to be willing to disagree with each other, and we have to be willing to experiment and be wrong. And there has to be a space where we can actually be open to the possibility of our non-sovereignty in relation even to our fantasies. So I think, so that, so, you know, what all of these... Yeah, that's a, a profound point, all right, to bring people into your life, right, and to have positive interactions with them requires the surrender of a substantial amount of your individual sovereignty. Being part of a community requires surrendering a significant part of your sovereignty. And yet, 
the good life for most people requires these very sacrifices, these necessary losses. These papers were about is that. It's about it's the question of what it means to be undone by your fantasy. And then also those moments at which you have to interrupt. Right. Think, think about uh, the su successful sexual act, all right, requires that you surrender control and that you be essentially undone by the experience of orgasm. Corrupt the fantasy that sustained you in order for you to be able to imagine a better justice. So Janice, uh, Janice started out with justice, and I, I'm always um, uh, moved by Agamben saying in, in his work on witnessing where he says, the performance of justice is really there to provide you the satisfaction that a decision happened. It's not actually a delivery of justice. It's not actually a delivery of the pleasure of the possibility of flourishing together. It's, it's that at least something happened. It's like the minimal event. Okay, so she's coming from a left-wing socialist perspective, but there's still a lot of good stuff here. Of something happening. So it's not even justice that we can imagine right now because we don't even know what the terms of collective life can be that the world can sustain and that we would fight. Okay, so she's talking about collective life, and I think most right-wingers would want a more corporate, a more collective life. They just would want people to have more freedom to be able to choose the community and collectivity and corporate community that they belong to, right? People who need people are the happiest people in the world, right? People who have other people in their life successfully getting along with other people are, generally speaking, happier and more productive, right? Generally speaking, a group strategy works out superior to an individualist strategy. For the world to sustain. So what's really interesting is that all of the papers, and in some way we're trying to think about what it means to have a kind of, you know, affective or aesthetic interruption so that you could walk around and figure out what, need, what could be preserved and taken out of that place to be the building ground, the affective building ground for the new life and the, the new good life that we could then actually fight for. And what's, so I'll just close by saying, yo, yeah, oh, let's see, I have to see. I just saw my cat here. <laughs> so speaking of the good life. Is he calling you? He's calling me. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Oh, I talked for too long. Okay. So I'll just, <laughs> you know, he's like, he's standing there looking at me going, feed me. Yeah. <laughs> but you're not here. So now I'm going to really beat you up when you come home. Um, so I think, so, so one of the things we could think about is, the, uh, is the, the how to effectively deal with what's unbearable, which is the loss of our object world. And not to just be overwhelmed by the loss of that object world, but to see that loss as the opportunity for building new. So I, I know men who don't want to date and don't want to relate because of the pain of the breakup of an emotional relationship was greater than they can handle. They don't want to go through it again. Better objects for optimism. And what the aesthetic was in all of these papers, the, the aesthetic technological was in all of these papers, was the kind of interruption that allowed people to feel a kind of absorption in the possibility that the that the artwork made to feel otherwise and to represent otherwise. And I think the, its relation to criticism and political theory is and to create forms for magnetizing new optimistic affects that we could trust. So that's my response to you. So this is the late professor of affect, fancy academic term for feeling, Laurent Ballant. And you'll be thrilled to know that there is a New Yorker essay about her. It's called Affect Theory and the New Age of Anxiety, how Lauren Ballant's cultural criticism predicted the trumping of politics. This was published March 18th, 2019.
In October 2011, the literary scholar and cultural theorist Lauren Berlant published Cruel Optimism, a meditation on our attachment to dreams that we know are destined to be dashed. Berlant had taught in the English department at the University of Chicago since 1984. She had established herself as a skilled interpreter of film and literature, starting out with a series of influential, interlinked books that she called her National Sentimental Trilogy. A sense of national identity, these books argued, wasn't so much a set of conscious decisions that we make as if it was a set of compulsions, attachments and identifications, that we feel. In Cruel Optimism, Berlant moved from theorizing about genres of fiction... Yeah, that, that's so important. Our most important allegiances are not rationally thought through. They are experienced primarily, meaning loyalty to family, to extended family, to community, to tribe, to nation. Right? Nationalism is not something that's primarily rationally thought out with a disengaged, reflexive, buffered identity Know, using strategic autonomous approaches to life, all right, our sense of communal identity, all right, our most primal loyalties are not the product of reason. Fiction to theorizing about genres for life. We like to imagine that our life follows some kind of trajectory, like the plot of a novel, and that by recognizing its arc, we might in turn become its author. That is so good. We like to believe that our lives follow a trajectory and by recognizing the arc of our lives, we can somehow become the author of our lives. So this is more of a, an enlightenment, rationalist, strategic, autonomous, liberal perspective that we can be the author of our lives. I think the more right-wing you are, the more at ease you are with the, the vulnerability of life, the, the weakness of reason and we will have you know, less optimism about the individual's ability to author his life. But often what we feel instead is a sense of precariousness, a gut-level suspicion that hard work, thrift, and following the rules won't give us control over the story much. Okay, so we, we don't get to control our lives. We can have some agency over our lives in different parts of our lives, but we don't get to control the whole thing because our lives are interlinked with other people. That's why I don't love the individualist approach to life or to understanding how the world works. I prefer the tribal, national understanding that we are not primarily individuals with you know, God-given, inalienable rights, we are primarily members of a nation or members of a tribe. And whatever rights that we can develop are contingent depending upon circumstances and are going to be uh, historically changeable, right? Depending on the situation, you're going to have access to more or fewer rights. Let's guarantee a happy ending. For all that, we keep on hope. So I think people on the right have a less optimistic view of human nature, and so have a more resigned understanding of the tragic nature of life, while people on the left, with their belief in a strategic, autonomous, buffered, rational identity that individuals have these inalienable rights or should have, right? The people on the left tend to have a much more optimistic view of human nature and tend to be less well-equipped to deal with tragedy so many people on the left have given up on politics because it's just become too painful for them. 
when communism has been tried, it's not worked out well. So many people on the left have transferred their allegiances to campaigning for human rights. It's a way to retain the primordial impulses behind left-wing politics, but transfer them to a realm outside of politics and you know, make up this idea of human rights and then fight for you know, human rights. Hoping, and that persuades us to keep on living. The persistence of the American dream, Berlant suggests, amounts to a cruel optimism, a conditioning when something you desire is actually an obstacle to your own flourishing. We are accustomed to longing for things that we know are bad for us. So one thing I, I notice in all, <laughs> pretty much all, dramatic movies, plays, TV shows, novels, is that what creates the tragedy is that uh, the individual protagonists don't have any higher transcendent purpose beyond the satisfaction of their own desires. So I came to this insight after years in 12-step programs. So one part of the ethos behind the 12-step program is that there should be a transcendent purpose to your life beyond satisfying your own desires, that frequently pursuing your own desires will you know, lead you to self-destruction. And so we are offered instead the transcendent purpose of being of service to other people. It, transcending your own desires can come from an allegiance to a political or religious or cultural ideology or pursuit, but people tend frequently to get into a great deal of trouble pursuing their natural desires, their you know, optimistic delusions, if they don't have anything above their desires, which is something that religion offers. Like cigarettes or cake. Perhaps your emotional state is calibrated around a sports team like the New York Knicks, and despite hopes that next season will be better, you vaguely understand that you'll be let down anyway. So anyone whose primary purpose in life or a substantial part of their purpose in life or a substantial part of their meaning in life or a substantial part of their identity in life comes from allegiance to a sporting team is in a great deal of trouble. I mean, that's a really bad basis for living. And so I inevitably find that the more extreme someone's devotion to a sporting allegiance, right, the more trouble the person is, the more of a loser they are who wants to shed this unwanted self and dissolve themselves in this supposedly superior championship team. But our Sisyphean pursuit of the good life has higher stakes, and its amalgam of fantasy and futility is something that we process as experience before we rationalize it in thought. These feelings, Berlant says, are the body's response to the world. Right. So that is a, a trad perspective. So the left-wing, liberal, modern perspective on life is that we can strategically, autonomously, through our buffered identities, reason our way to being the captains of our ship. The traditional perspective on life understands that reason is weak, that uh, we are a part of, of a nation or a tribe rather than individuals, that we, we don't have nearly as much power over ourselves as we imagine, that our reason takes place within the body, that we have all sorts of precognitive impulses and directions and impetuses before we can even start to reason that shape how we react, such as the effect of our genes and the effect of our early imprinting and the, the effect of incentives around us of which we might not be conscious. So what she's alluding to here 
is a much more foundational part of the right-wing perspective on life, even though she is a socialist. Something you're always catching up to. Cruel optimism was dense and academic, but it proved enormously influential. Its timing was serendipitous. Look, do you still paint your face in Aussie cricket team colors on game day? I've never painted my face, and I don't believe I've ever worn a sporting uh, paraphernalia like a shirt. The book was published at a moment when Barack Obama could still credibly draw upon the audacity of hope, and with a second term in sight, people wondered if he would finally unleash the progressive will that many believed lingered deep inside him. Those who opposed him continued to work themselves into a radical frenzy as the Republican mainstream reoriented itself around the Tea Party. Berlant tuned into a wider sense of disaffection, the feeling among average voters that neither of these visions for change was really about them or for them. According to Berlant, these suspicions manifested themselves in mundane ways. Hoarding things or overeating might be attempts to overcome feelings of personal powerlessness. And her effective framework was a yeah, so so many of our tactics in life, they, they start out as adaptive, such as overeating, all right? And you, I know when I eat too much, the blood rushes to my stomach, which reduces my anxiety levels. Also, I get to distract myself with a lot of pleasure. So what starts out, however, as adaptive quickly becomes a maladaptive strategy for life. ...means of understanding larger manifestations of these suspicions, too. The Occupy movement, which began in September 2011... So many of us are sustained by cruel optimisms and delusions, but some of these optimisms and delusions are adaptive and others of them are maladaptive. Could be seen as a response to the cruel optimism of capitalism, the pent-up outrage of citizens realizing that they'd been chasing nothing more than a dream. In the years that followed, Berlant's interest in the immediacy of what others call felt experience helped explain why people were feeling increasingly unsteady. It was as though they were in relationships that lacked reciprocity. Her work, like the school of thought that had produced it... So I would suspect the primary reason people feel unsteady is not capitalism, it's not neoliberalism. It is that we have reduced the ability to have freedom of association and we have reduced rights to private property. And so people have more individualist, less communal identities today. And if we could restore pre-civil rights America and reduce litigiousness, that we would be able to encourage more bonding with others, which would give people a more solid sense of themselves, all right? Trying to have a sense of yourself that is individualist is a much weaker way to create a life than a sense of oneself as a member of a tribe or of a nation or of a community, something larger than yourself. So she seems to be venerating here. She, she's kind of an interesting combination between the socialist and recognizing the primordial power of all sorts of urges that go on inside of us prior to making cognitive, rational choices. Was attentive to the buffeting, emotional weather of everyday life. Consider our Twitter-fed swings of anger and mirth, the oversharing and moodiness ascribed to younger generations, the paranoia, so the oversharing of younger generations, all right, these are primarily people who lack normal human connections, all right? If you're tight with your family, tight with your friends, tight with your community, you're much less likely to self-destruct on a live stream or on social media in general, right? The, the most valuable resource you can have 
is a sense of self-respect and some fact-based you know, liking of yourself. And this is much more likely to develop when you have you know, a whole series of positive relationships in your life as opposed to an individualist existence. Just trying to construct meaning through the power of your own thoughts. Stoked by proliferating conspiracy theories, even the emergence of the eternally sad pop star. Shortly after the publication of Cruel Optimism, Berlant began to send... So I noticed that allegiance to a pop star much stronger among people outside of traditional religion than people inside of traditional religion. People inside of traditional allegiances and traditional identity have much less need for parasocial relationships in general, including to pop stars. It's a subtle atmospheric disturbance. In September of 2012, she offered a diagnosis on her blog. Many of you would say that Donald Trump was excluded from the Republican convention, has no traction as a political candidate, and is generally viewed as a clown, whose spewing occasionally hits in the vicinity of an opinion that a reasonable person could defend. But I'm here to tell you that he actually won the Republican nomination and is dominating the airwaves during this election season. He is not doing this with dark money or coke-like influence peddling. He has done this the way the fabled butterfly does it, as its wing flapping sets off revolutions. Berlant felt Trump's spectral presence everywhere, his bluster mimicked and channeled by the party establishment. Okay, a great comment in the chat that Swifties may be more loyal than most Christians these days. Well, to the extent that's true, why is it true? It's because loyalty to Taylor Swift and attending her concerts is providing more of a sense of community and identity and meaning and purpose and life and connecting them more to people that they want to be connected to than being a Christian, right? Taylor Swift is our competing Christianity to the extent that what you said is true. Though hardly a man of nuance, he had tapped into the subtleties of effective politics. She called it the trumping of politics. Literary criticism used to be centered on meaning. The critic interrogated a poem or a passage and applied her preferred theory of how meanings were produced and where they could be found. A new critic might have scrutinized form and irony, explicating the interplay between overt and actual meaning. A deconstructionist might have been attuned to the way the metaphors and propositions in a passage undermined each other. A historicist to the way the meanings of a text might be situated within larger political or social tensions. For each, the task was interpretation, and the currency was meaning. In the past couple of decades, however, a different approach has emerged, claiming the rubric affect theory. Okay, I don't think I'd heard about affect theory prior to my explorations recently, but uh, I'm intrigued. Under its influence, critics attended to effective charge. They saw our world as shaped not simply by narratives and arguments, but also by non-linguistic effects, by mood, by atmosphere, by feelings. The so-called affective turn was propelled in no small part by a series of essays starting in the mid-1990s. So I, I think this touches on a perennial theme of this show over the past few months, the power of the non-linguistic, right? The power of primal emotions and, and all sorts of things that move us prior to our having an ability to start thinking in words. 90s by the late Eve Kosofsky Sedgwick who had become fascinated by the work of the psychologist Sylvan Tompkins. He had identified nine primary affects, some positive, interest, enjoyment, 
most negative. Anger, fear, shame, disgust, dismell. One neutral surprise. Tompkins, who had a background in theater, believed that people acted toward one another according to social scripts. We could achieve peace or happiness by understanding how the scripts worked and by avoiding situations. I, I think that's true. We do largely relate to one another according to social scripts, and your ability to understand the appropriate script for your situation is frequently the difference between losing or winning in that interaction. Situations ...that triggered negative effects. But literary critics like Sedgwick were less interested in figuring out how to make people better than in understanding why we feel the way we do. During the 2000s, affect theory became one of the dominant paradigms of literary studies and a bridge to other fields, notably social psychology, anthropology, and political theory. Scholars like Sarah Ahmed, Sian Nye, and Anne Svetkovich began exploring the emotional contours of life during increasingly precarious times. They were circling around a kind of overstimulated numbness, considering everything from what it meant to call something interesting, a hedge against actual judgment, to the relationship between economic anxiety and mental health. So why are we overstimulated? Why, why do we seek to get you know, more stimulation than is good for us? A, a large part of that is lack of normal human connection. All right? The more rooted you are in your family, extended family, community, friends, your profession, your hobbies, your interests, your educational community, right? the less need you have to go outside of those vital primal human connections for stimulation. Health. In Ugly Feelings, 2005, Nye published a bestiary of effects, including animatedness, envy, irritation, paranoia, and the combination of shock and boredom that she called stuplimity. Other affect theorists noted that, amid a sense of dawning futility, Many people seem to derive their greatest pleasure from making others feel bad. Disaffection and disillusionment are contagions we can spread ourselves. Berlant roots her version of affect theory. So why would many people get more pleasure from making other people feel bad? Because they want to induce in other people what's going on with them. All right. We're always broadcasting. <laughs> All right. We're always sending out signals to others if we're basically happy, we're going to want other people to be happy. If we're basically miserable, we're going to want other people to be miserable. So that's where you can make a good case for the moral obligation to try to reduce your miserable level and try to increase your happiness level. Less in works of psychology than in works of Marxist thought, especially those of Raymond Williams who back in the 1950s wrote of the structure of feeling. He was trying to describe how we come to agree on social or cultural conventions, the intuitive, pre-ideological sense a cohort has that one version of the future is feasible while another is not. Berlant, in turn, sought to chronicle dramas of adjustment that have overtaken the post-war boom-time conceptions of the good life, and that might force into... Okay, dramas of adjustment. All right, having dramatically more immigration... Uh, overturning the old constitution for a new civil rights constitution, right? limiting the rights of private property, limiting rights to freedom of association in the name of this new litigious, intrusive, big government civil rights industrial complex, right? that's going to cause a lot of dramas of integration. To being new recognitions of what a life is and ought to be. The draw of the American dream. Okay, what a life is and what it ought to be that is something from a traditional perspective exists outside of us and we adjust to it rather than the modern liberal left 
consensus that we can create that with the power of our reason through our own, you know, individual buffered, reflexive, distant identity. Dream, in her view, has always been its seductive invitation to fuse one's private fortune with that of the nation. When she began teaching at the University of Chicago in the mid-80s, Ronald Reagan spoke confidently of a morning in America, and the American story of post-war prosperity still seemed possible. General skepticism about meritocracy and opportunity, felt most acutely by marginalized groups who couldn't see themselves in picket fence campaign ads. So what type of person would, uh, would bewail American meritocracy? Like, what type of group? All right, one that's not cutting it. Right, if you're cutting it, you have, no ba you have no problem with being judged on merit. But if the merits of what your community is producing are quite minimal, while the social havoc that your community is producing are quite maximal, you're going to have a dramatic psychological need to blame your problems on something outside your community. Ads had yet to go mainstream. Berlant saw the contradictions within the public realm played out in sentimental fiction. These works were often seen as unserious because of their appeal to emotion and their focus on the domestic sphere, and yet they could move people to act. In sentimental fiction, we encounter righteous solutions to problems that feel unresolvable in real life. Berlant held that popular culture had been built layer by layer, from Uncle Tom's Cabin to The Simpsons, upon the assumption that identifying with someone else's stress, pain, or humiliated identity could change you. Popular culture relies on keeping sacrosanct this aspect of sentimentality, that underneath we are all alike. Okay, that is... <laughs> A dominant strand of American popular culture, and it's also a delusion. Underneath, we're not all alike. Uh, different groups experience the world differently. Uh, it's the most basic of observations, yet it's one that the liberal left dominant elitist mainstream academic world rejects as you know, primitive, medieval, and reprehensible. She observed. Everyone has heartstrings. Over time, she wrote, we have grown addicted to having them pulled rather than focusing on what the pulling could accomplish by way of political change. We'd replace tangible action with effective experience. What does it mean for the theory and practice of social transformation, she asked in a 1999 essay, when feeling good becomes evidence of justice's triumph? Somewhere along the way, doing good had come to seem irrelevant. You're going to most often feel good when you're connected to other people. Right? That's the best way most consistent way to feel good is to have the best possible relations that you can have with your family, your extended family, your friends, your community, and strangers that you interact with and people at work. And so there are ways of living. There are adaptive strategies that enable you to have the best possible relations with everyone that you interact with, and that is what's going to make you feel good. How do you feel good? You get on the same page with other people. Then you create a shared reality, right, even if that's just you, you meet regularly in the elevator and you exchange a few words about sports or about the weather or about uh, something that's going on that's relatively innocuous. But if you can create a brief shared reality all right, with someone and get on the same page with them and get into some kind of synchronicity with them, you are going to leave those interactions with more emotional energy than you brought into the interaction. So you will get charged up, they will get charged up out of that emotional charge you will develop a bond. Out of that bond will come an ethic, right? If you can go around continually replacing and 
restoring and elevating your levels of emotional energy. I'm drawing on the works here of Randall Collins, right? Because you're getting on the same page with people and created a shared reality, all right? Even marching together, doing anything together, right? That brings about a sense of synchronicity, that you're working in a rhythm together and that you're working towards a common goal. You're going to consistently feel happier and more energized. If you lack energy and you lack happiness, it's because you are not establishing a shared reality with other people that you're interacting with. You are not developing a rhythm in your interactions with them and you're not getting on the same page and you don't have a sense of connection towards a common goal. Or maybe just felt impossible. In 2002, Berlant helped found the Feel Tank Chicago her version of that ubiquitous vehicle of policymaking, the think tank. The collective consisted of academic colleagues, artists, and activists who sought to take the emotional temperature of the body politic. It right, it's the Robert Putnam Bowling Alone study. Robert Putnam found the more diverse the community, right, the less likely people were to volunteer. The more diverse the community, the less likely you will feel safe and at ease and happy in the public space, the less likely you will participate in the public space, the more likely you are to retreat from the public space and watch a lot of television, which does not make for a happy, productive life. It functioned both as a support network and as a strategy workshop for political depressives. Underneath the playful conceit was the very serious possibility that politics was essentially theater and that it was basically impossible to opt out of one's part in it. As Berlant later wrote in Cruel Optimism, the political depressive might be cool, cynical, shut off, searingly rational or averse, and yet, having adopted a mode that might be called detachment, may not really be detached at all, but navigating an ongoing and sustaining relationship to the scene and circuit of optimism and disappointment. We dream of swimming toward a beautiful horizon, but in truth, Berlant evocatively observed, we are constantly dog-paddling around a space whose contours remain obscure. What stories do we tell ourselves in order to stay afloat? In December 2007, she started a blog called Supervalent Thought, dedicated to slowing the world. Okay, we have no alternative but to create stories to stay afloat. That is why I repeated someone else's observation that a hero story is a biological necessity. Right? We have no alternative but to create narratives that give meaning and purpose and structure to to our lives, right? There is no alternative to having a hero system. World down, zooming in on its mundanities. Some of its most bewitching posts had a voyeuristic intimacy, cataloging interactions on city streets or in coffee shops, scrutinizing nonverbal cues, gestures, and fleeting expressions, the traces of affect that litter our daily lives. In one post, Berlant recounts an argument between a cashier and an angry customer at a convenience store. The customer leaves in a huff but forgets his credit card, and the aggrieved yet duty-bound cashier rushes out after him, hoping to get his attention with an unusually loud whistle, the kind that you know requires your fingers. When the cashier returned, Berlant complimented him on his technique. He told us a story about elementary school, she wrote. He said he had had a math teacher who insulted and shamed him. One day she was using him as an example, and he just put his fingers in his mouth and blew. It was an experience that couldn't be easily distilled into lesson. It endured as a lingering effect. Berlant was interested in the atmosphere of scenes like these, acted out by dispirited characters in search of a plot. The Hundreds, Duke, Berlant's latest book, 
co-written with Kathleen Stewart, an anthropologist at the University of Texas at Austin, grows out of these short writing exercises. Each entry is an experiment in following out the impact of things in a hundred words, or a multiple of a hundred words. The result is a strange and captivating book. It is an inventory of what Berlant and Stewart call ordinaries, which arise from encounters with the world that are not events of knowing, units of anything, or revelations of realness or facts. Yeah, sharing a cottage together can do, you know, wonders for your happiness level. Uh, this, this analysis, this whole field of scholarship is an example to me of how there's so much to be learned from academics and from people who have completely different political orientations, right? You don't have to be a socialist to appreciate the, the frequent profundity of the late Laurent Ballant. They are records of affect, meditations, manifestos, and prose poems. There are entries on smoothies and weird encounters at the liquor store, digressions on selfies, yoga, and capitalism, a reference to the TV show Search Party and the real estate app Zillow. The authors sift through the detritus of the American dream, the symptoms of cruel optimism. Men at the local deli seem to suspect that life is a set of roadblocks cooked down to a rage. One particularly haunting page recounts an argument that the narrator had with a neighbor over a urinating dog. Another woman walks by, trying to calm the author down and bring her back to the good. His words were spitballs. Hers were gently bouncing tennis balls. He was a rage machine. She was a sympathy machine. But she seemed so tired, too, and I could only imagine why. In Berlant and Stewart's hands, affect theory provides a way of understanding the sensations and resignations of the present, the normalized exhaustion that comes with life in the new economy. It is a way of framing uniquely modern questions. Where did the seeming surplus of emotionality that we see on the Internet come from, and what might it become? What new political feelings were being produced by the rudderless drift of life in the gig economy? What if millennials were unintelligible to their parents simply because they resigned themselves to precariousness as life's defining feature? Okay, that precariousness, all right, does not primarily come from capitalism. Primarily comes from a lack of normal human connections, ties, and attachments, and loyalties from acknowledging oneself as a member of a tribe, of a community, of an extended family, of a nation, rather than looking at oneself as an individual with inalienable rights. A lot of affect theory is abstruse to the point where you forget that it aims to describe basic facets of everyday reality. Stewart's books have been a notable exception, interweaving diaristic observation and everyday reportage with critical theory. The sentences in Berlant's previous books and articles tended to be very long, conveying the sweeping complexity of her ideas. But she seems invigorated by the neurotic limitations of this form, which produces a kind of frenzied poetry. The hundreds calls to mind the adventurous, hybrid style of Fred Moten. The book includes a brief poem by him, Maggie Nelson, or Claudia Rankin, all of whom bend available literary forms into workable vessels for new ideas. Berlant leans into the wit and vulnerability on the edges of her previous work. There is nothing I love more than watching someone use their freedom, she writes. I'll coast in awkward transit, family meals, and acrid sex to get next to a freedom. My God, Fox News is advertising they've got Hans von Spakovsky coming up next. I mean, this is the multiply debunked, discredited, uh, so-called expert continually trotted out by right-wing news media. Absolutely pathetic. I'll fling myself at ordinary monsters if in the crevasse of the mistake I get next to a freedom. 
We bear each other, hoping to breathe in each other's freedom. The most penetrating moments of the hundreds occur when the authors meditate on what it means to write about life in the first place. Their efforts end up telling us something about what it means to assess our lives without giving up on ourselves. We make a pass at a swell in realism and look for the hook. We back up at the hint of something. We butt in. Right, so trying to assess your life, right? This is a very liberal preoccupation. Follow your own bliss. You can create meaning on your own from your own strategic, you know, reflexive, distant, buffered, rational perspective. Right? The right-wing approach to finding meaning in life is to understand that it comes outside of you, comes from your tribe, your community, your, your nation. Right? It comes from being a part of something bigger than yourself and adjusting yourself to this outside structure rather than expecting the world or seeking the world to adjust to you, which is more of a liberal left perspective. We try to describe the smell. We trim the fat to pinpoint what seems to be the matter here. It's like an asymptote, moving toward but never arriving at the point of convergence. This is, of course, the geometry of cruel optimism, the endless chase for a destination you'll never reach. It's tiring work. When writing fails, the relationship so Bernard says, why isn't there more of a move to ban people over the age of 70 for running for political office? My, my objection to that is you're saying that people you can't be trusted to decide where to bestow their, their votes. So I, I would prefer to just allow people to make choices rather than to try to implement rules about who people can vote for or not. of word and world, it spins out like car wheels in mud leaving you stranded and tired of trying. All attachment is optimistic, Berlant argued in Cruel Optimism, because it forces us out of ourselves. From there we enter into the world in order to bring closer the satisfying something that you cannot generate on your own, but sense in the wake of a person, a way of life, an object, project, concept, or scene. The challenge is finding configurations that don't simply reproduce the same old patterns of life. There's a stirring moment at the end of Cruel Optimism when Berlant writes about the book's cover image, a painting that depicts the artist and disability activist. Okay, that's uh, the New Yorker essay. I was just so intrigued by learning about Laurent Berlant and her body of work. You'll be glad to know I went on a research binge. And uh, here are some of the things I found. There was a big article about her in N Plus One magazine, Socialist magazine. Talks about affect theory's center of gravity lies with Lauren Ballant, English professor at the University of Chicago. Her central concept is the title of a 2011 book, Cruel Optimism. It's a distinctively contemporary feeling. Well, if, if that's true, maybe there's something wrong with our contemporary world, which is not primarily structural. Maybe it's, well, maybe it's not primarily about economics. Maybe it's primarily about the decline of traditional rights, such as to private property and freedom of association, and the imposition of an enormous and intrusive and litigious civil rights industrial complex. So according to Laurent Ballant, cruel optimism is the sticky, effective feeling left by the slow decay of once stable forms of the good life. Yes, I would agree with that because we have less of a sense of community than we used to. We have less social trust and less social cohesion, thanks in large part to inordinate amounts of immigration combined with the civil rights industrial complex. So cruel optimism is a relationship of attachment to compromised conditions of possibility, 
whose realization is discovered either to be impossible, sheer fantasy, or too possible and toxic. Well, you're more likely to be vulnerable to cruel optimisms if you're believing that you can create meaning and purpose from inside your own head rather than attaching yourself to a structure of meaning that exists primarily outside of you in a tribe or a nation or a community. So however harmful an individual attachment might be to a relationship, to an ambition, to a way of life, giving up on it would shatter the personality that has been organized around it. So do we want to organize ourselves where there's nothing higher to ourselves than the satisfaction of our desires, or do we want to organize our lives around transcendent pursuits that go above and beyond and are more important than our own visceral desires? So according to Ballant, whatever the form of attachment is, the continuity of the form, it provides something of the continuity of the subject's sense of what it means to keep on living and to look forward to being in the world. Yeah. To me, happiness, my favorite definition of happiness is the one I think I came up with. Happiness is looking forward to the day or looking forward to tomorrow. Taking on an impossible debt load to buy a house or to go to college because you don't believe you'll have a stable or normal life without it, this is cruel optimism. The graduate student's single-minded, misery-inducing pursuit of one of the few remaining tenure-track jobs is too is cruel optimism. So one of the approaches to life that leads people to 12-step programs like Debtors Anonymous is, I'm going to graduate school. And affect theory captures academic life. Academia is undergoing the process of the colonization of feeling. Huh, I don't know what that means. Grandest example of cruel optimism is found in our collective relationship to a looming climate catastrophe. Okay, cruel optimism describes a way of life under neoliberalism. Right, I don't see that. And then we had the New Yorker. Oh, okay, Erin McGlock. Right, I played video of her earlier. She writes in the London Review of Books. In academia, reputation is gossip about who had the ideas. So I earlier read her observations on Obama and Oprah, part of a shared national sentimentality. The most influential book, Cruel Optimism, describes the relationship would exist when something you desire is an obstacle to your flourishing, such as romantic love, fast food, the Democratic Party, Prestige TV. Each offers its comforts and securities, but each diminishes in us large or small ways, making false promises and prevents us from striving for something better, yet we continue to strive, blame ourselves when things go wrong. We accept casual contracts instead of hoping and seeking a more secure position. Explains why we spend $10 on a cup of coffee. All right, so you say, wow, 40, this Lauren Ballant, she just sounds amazing. Surely, surely there's, there's more. More where that came from. What, what, what else does uh, Lauren Ballant have to offer us? And you're in luck. I think I've got more. No, not in luck. Let me catch my breath here and find what I want to play. Riva Lair, lying beside her dog Zora. Lair seems to float behind Zora, her hand covering her face. Zora is blind in one eye and wears a cone around her neck. They Save are, by conventional standards, 
limited and vulnerable beings. But to Berlant they are a team. They seem at peace with each other's bodily being, and seem to have given each other what they came for, companionship, reciprocity, care, protection. In the absence of real stability, the state of affairs... I mean, that's what we have going on here. We are at ease with each other's bodies, and we extend to each other all those great things that the New Yorker article was just talking about. All right, this is from the University of Chicago, where chasing the good life is holding us back. In the morning, what motivates you to go to a job you may not love? Save up to buy a house. Uh, maybe because you have obligations that should transcend your own petty desires. Or a luxury car. Maybe because you have obligations that transcend your own petty desires. For most Americans, it's a desire to attain the quote-unquote good life. It's the From the moments you live, not the things you own. But what if that promise that you can have the good life if you just work hard enough is a lie? Good life. Starting in the 1970s, the image of the good life as an economic good life started losing its traction. Lauren Berlant is a professor of English at the University of Chicago. She spent her career theorizing and writing about finding meaning in American life and whom our society decides gets to be included as citizens. I mean, there's this whole question of being deserving, which I find so terrifying, was so much a part of the politicization of the good life. Berlant says that our society and individual sense of place in the world have been shattered in the last few decades. But she wants to find a way to reshape things. You know, insofar as like I work with art and work with theory, my interest is in trying to produce better ways of thinking about what a good life would be that didn't depend on achievement and success and these kind of very kind of beef jerky like models of what how people live. From the University of Chicago, this is big. Right, that's what religion traditional community used to give people. Why not uh, restore more incentives for building community with your own? nationalists and Zionists, and they like ran guns for the Israelis. So there was a lot Wait, of she's talking about her. in America. Who gets included in society and who gets excluded? How do we find meaning in this experience? These are questions that Berlant has been asking her entire life. My grandparents on my father's side were communists from Russia. And my grandparents on my mother's side were bourgeois nationalists and Zionists, and they, like, ran guns for the Israelis. So there was a lot of citizenship talk mm -hmm. in the family. And I was 11 in 68. So I came into kind of adulty consciousness, political consciousness, like, during a period when people were really fighting about it. And so there was just a lot of that kind of conversation. And I think it really matters if you're coming up during a time of movement culture. The first books Borlant wrote were called her National Sentimentality Trilogy. They grappled with questions like... What are the relationships and responsibilities that we have to each other? And how are those bonds formed? Thinking about belonging and attachment to life and the attachment to living on, how one lives on, has been incredibly important to me. You know, some people think they're attached to each other because of the way the law uh, makes a web of constancy among them. So we're all citizens. What does that mean? So many people get a substantial part of their meaning in life from being a fan. And nationalism is an extension of fandom. So there's a new book out by a liberal left professor, Paul Campos, it's called A Fan's Life, The Agony of Victory and the Thrill of Defeat. It's about his experience on a University of Michigan football uh, Reddit board. And it gets a review in the May 18, 2023 London Review of Books. It says that uh, Adam Smith's famous metaphor of an invisible hand guiding markets was one of the Enlightenment's many appeals to a fictional outsider, supposed to be a barometer of value. So the Enlightenment places a 
great emphasis on the pursuit of neutrality and objectivity. You've got uh, the discipline of economics that uh, has historically assumed that markets are instruments of justice, that the price system is oblivious to the cultural identity or political status of its participants. And so this is part of the Enlightenment project to make life increasingly rational. Now, the anxiety buzzing around in the background of this book, A Fan's Life, is that fandom has increasingly entered the public square, has now infected American culture and politics at large. So we've seen liberalism give way to neoliberalism. So neoliberalism is cutthroat politics, uh, cutthroat economics, uh, more, more free market economics than even classical liberalism. So now our elites are no longer our middle class, our bourgeoisie are no longer given the task of sustaining ideals of fairness and balance, but instead have become more like fans, they are instead given the task of whipping up enthusiasm. So online, there is, this, there is sufficient space for every opinion and for every claim to be published and articulated and live-streamed. So what need now is there for anyone to look down on these claims from a position of disinterest, such as the objectivity that uh, the, the mainstream news media supposedly has. So fandom has increasingly become the norm. The internet is less a marketplace of ideas, as conservatives and libertarians would have it. It's become much more a marketplace of passions. This has significant knock-on effects for the rest of the media, especially the liberal media that once sought to distinguish themselves in terms of their commitment to neutrality, to critical distance, to facts, right? These enlightenment virtues, virtues, right? These enlightenment values that uh, go against a public sphere awash with fandom. So nationalism is a form of fandom. It rebels against the constraints of the liberal construct, of liberal reason, of liberal allegiance to neutrality and objectivity because nationalism expresses an unapologetic bias for one side against the other. So outrageous conservative media outlets such as Fox News and Breitbart have nourished the sense that nobody is free from bias and prejudice. It's only the liberal elite who ever pretended to be so in the first place. The internet isn't just a space where fans debate with one another. It's also where tribes build up a distorted and hateful picture of their enemies. So sports allegiances are a sublimated form of politics, and politics are a sublimated form of fandom of the more traditional kind. And so the, the mentality that distrusts all claims to neutrality and objectivity ends up seeing corruption everywhere, which is a pretty stimulating point. All right, back to Lauren Belland. A few years ago, a, a student and I taught a class called uh, Queer Arts After Stonewall. Today marks 50 years since the start of oh. rights at the Stonewall Inn in New York. I think I'll skip that. Quality, corporate greed, and the influence of big business in politics. Spreading to hundreds of cities across America. People who are starting to think again about, well, what does it mean to be a public? When I was doing my early work, the question of what a public was was so important. And then there was a long period, like the last decade, where everyone's like, there are no, there's no such thing as a general public, which is related to there's no such thing as a purple America. And I think Obama basically emptied the bottle on the model of um, citizenship is a kind of meta-category that makes all of us have something in common with each other. What do you other. mean he emptied the bottle? Well, he said there's no red America or blue America, there's purple America. Even as we speak there are those who are preparing to divide us. The spin masters, the negative ad peddlers, who embrace the politics of anything goes. Well, I say to them tonight, there is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. 
And now everyone's like, where's Purple America? Now, I, my first three books were about national sentimentality, e.g. Purple America. That, okay. You know, the, the idea that there was some common space that people thought was more or less a fact of a common space. And even if you had different affective relations to it, like you might hate it or you might like it, you, you saw that you were attached to it. Where everybody had, because everybody is holding the same songs or the same images or the same fantasies, they have something in common with each other. I think that's been pretty shattered. So we're living without national sentimentality for the first time since the 19th century, maybe the late 18th century. Right um, now we're not. Right now. And, what, and tell me what you mean more by that. We're living without national sentimentality. We're living, we're living without a normative sense that to be American means to have something in common with other people who are members of the set. And we don't have that anymore. I think it's been completely wrecked. Uh, and that's one of the great... Uh... Yeah, so you can think in large part civil rights industrial complex and inordinate levels of immigration. Frequently of people who is not well equipped to thrive in our modern economy. So Benny Johnson posts on Twitter August 11, Rich Men North of Rich Richmond is the most listened to track in the world in the past 24 hours. This American working man's protest song has millions and millions of plays sung by an off-the-grid farmer in the countryside with his dogs. And Nathan Kofnis responds, main point of conservatives' new favorite song is that rich men have devalued and taxed the dollar. But in America, most taxes are paid by the rich, and even our poor are rich by global standards. An off-the-grid Virginia farmer who can spend more than the annual household income in most countries on recording equipment for his music hobby. Right, 40 years ago, an American hillbilly would have been lucky to own his own harmonica that cost less than a one-week supply of this guy's beard wax. Populists on both the left and the right can't articulate what irks them, so they invent economic grievances and, blames, and blame these rich men north of Richmond for forcing them to sit out here and waste my life away. Right, I think I agree with that Kaufner's critique. Um, effects, by which I don't mean one of the good effects, of the current administration. Democrats produce mobs. Republicans produce jobs. Increasingly, we Americans occupy alternate universes. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. And there's a rejoinder here. Question either the super rich don't pay taxes because they are high IQ and have good accountants and lawyers, or they pay the most taxes, which is it? That's very easy. It is the super rich and the rich who pay the most taxes. Now, they may not pay as many taxes as you would like, but taxes are overwhelmingly paid by the rich. No, that is asking the question again of, you might be here. You might, you might be in the same space as me, but it doesn't mean we both belong to the space. When Mexico sends its people... Okay, so Los Angelinos have nothing in common, right? Half of Los Angelinos, I, I don't think, can even speak English. So when you can't even share a common language with someone, that you're in the same physical geographic space, doesn't mean that you have you know, much of a bond, right? That's no basis to build meaningful relationships when you can't speak the same language. Well, they're not sending their best. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some... I assume are good people. And the Ministry of Cruelty, or whoever makes his decisions, um, uh, uh, has decided to float the idea of giving up birthright citizenship. You know, to me... That uh, the Ministry of Cruelty. Okay, cruelty to whom is kindness to others, right? By employing some standards about who gets to become an American citizen. By, I would say, that allowing citizenship to people who are in the country illegally, right, is cruel both to the majority, to the existing citizenry, and cruel to those who abide by the rules of the law and try to immigrate to America legally. So I would not say denying birthright citizenship is just some 
gratuitous cruelty. To me, it is kind to those who deserve kindness, and it is tough to those who deserve toughness. It's uh, just a kind of astonishing moment in dialing back what constitutes belonging, that you sure. have to earn belonging now, that it's not something that you show up for. And it has yeah, that, that's a right-wing approach. You earn belonging. It's not just something that you show up for, right? That, that you should earn your way. That if your group overall is consistently producing havoc, is consistently absorbing more tax dollars than it contributes, it's understandable why, why people outside your group would not be positively attuned to your group, right? Yeah, individuals and groups should have the mindset of earning their way in life and not just expect everything to be given to them because they have certain inalienable rights or they can construct uh, emotionally or legally or rationally or politically compelling arguments. It has to be fought for because you can see the incredible vulnerability. If, you, if the way that you operate your life is against my best interests, why should I have positive feelings about you? If the way that your group behaves is against my best interests, why should I be positively attuned to you? This is insane what she's suggesting, that uh, groups and individuals, just because they're in the same geographic or uh, nation-state regime, that uh, therefore we should just love one another and pull together. Right? If you're consistently against my best interests, uh, why would I support you? Why would I love you? If your group consistently acts against my best interests, at every form of life wants to construct an environment that is best suited to its own thriving. And so every form of life naturally has a negative reaction to those other forms of life that destroy its optimal environment. This is library, right? If you go to the library to try to study and to learn, you will naturally have a very negative reaction against protesters and activists who disrupt your ability to study and to learn. ...of people who don't have it as a protection. And I think it's a really big question now. What are our names for the thing that we hold in common? One of the forces driving the break... Uh, what do we have in common, right? The best predictor of people getting along is genetic similarity, followed by cultural, religious, uh, political solidarity, right? The more you have in common, the more likely you are to get along with other people. That's it. Bye-bye.